You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, it's Chris Spangle, the host and founder of We Are Libertarians. And this particular debate was not produced or hosted by We Are Libertarians, Hody, or any of the rest of us here. Um, it was hosted by the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. And they have graciously allowed us to rip the audio for you of their debate and put it up in our feed. And we have some exciting news. Uh, there was a, a, an issue, and the person that was producing the debates for the Libertarian Party of Kentucky was not able to do it anymore. And so they reached out to We Are Libertarians to help provide some tech support. So on Saturday, May 16th at 8 p.m., We Are Libertarians, the Libertarian Party of Kentucky, the Libertarian Party of Missouri, and Reason Magazine will be co-sponsoring a debate uh, at 8 p.m. And it will be hosted on all of our social medias. So you can go to Reason or we are libertarians facebook page and watch it there you can watch it on on youtube uh i believe it'll be on the lp national youtube so we'll see but you can check all that out on saturday night it will be moderated by matt welch of reason and the candidates participating will be adam kokesh joe jorgensen justin amash jacob hornberger and judge jim gray we will also be providing tech support and co-sponsoring the debates on Tuesday night, I think it is 7 or 8 p.m. I should, probably should have looked this up before I did the promo uh, for the vice presidential candidates. And then Wednesday night uh, for the presidential candidates again for a smaller amount as chosen by delegates. So please tune in. We will also put those the audio of those here for you to catch up. But we really appreciate it if you'd go and uh, like those, share those, and get as many people watching as possible. It's a great opportunity for them to see Libertarians debate and show off who your choices are. So thank you so much, and we appreciate you tuning into We Are Libertarians, and we appreciate all of our patrons, because without our patrons, when... The Libertarian Party of Kentucky and Reason Magazine wanted to co-sponsor a debate. We have the technical ability to do so because of the things that we were able to buy because of our patrons. So thank you so much for that. We are able to take advantage of opportunities because of your patronage. And so we truly do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy this debate. Or, you know, as much as you can when a bunch of Libertarians are arguing. Good evening and welcome to the Libertarian Party of Kentucky's uh, I think this is the third debate that we've hosted so far. We'd like to welcome the candidates this evening. We'll introduce them in a moment. Um, I just want to go over a couple of ground rules first. Um, and, and by the way, I did want to thank Scott Philback and Christy Kendrick for their continued help with the Libertarian Party of Kentucky, Dan Fishman uh, for his technical assistance, and of course, the Lions of Liberty for accommodating uh, debate scheduling with us this evening. Uh, real quick on the rules, um, each candidate will be given two minutes to respond to each question and two minutes to present a closing argument. Each candidate also has three time extension or rebuttal cards, total of three. They can use it for either rebuttal or time extension. They just hold that up um, or let me know that they want to use that. Uh, we ask the candidates not talk over or interrupt each other. Um, if they do it repeatedly, we may remove a rebuttal card. Uh, each candidate will also have the opportunity to ask another candidate one question. It should generally not be multi-part, and we do keep it to two questions posed to any individual candidate. There will be a link up to the poll towards the end of the debate, and it will typically be up for about five to ten minutes after the debate ends. Um, with that, we'll go ahead and introduce our candidates this evening. We have with us uh, Brian Ellison, 
Sam Robb, Arvind Bora, Adam Kokesh, and Dan Bierman. We wanted to welcome them to our program this evening. Um, we'll go ahead and start with the first question. It's an easy, the only easy question they're going to get all night. Uh, can you tell us about yourself, why you decided to run for the presidential nomination, and what the objectives are of your campaign? We'll start with Mr. Ellison. Hey, so uh, my name is Brian Ellison. I have uh, been an activist within uh, the Libertarian Party for several years. Uh, I decided to run for president uh, a few months ago. I was a latecomer to the race, but as it turns out, now I'm like a veteran. Like I've been around a lot longer than a lot of these other guys. So not, not the guys I'm debating today, but, you know, some of the other people that want to be candidates. So anyway, um, I decided to join the race back in February because although there's there, there were a lot of good candidates, I really just felt like there was something missing from the libertarian uh, lineup to, for potential nominees this year. And, and what was really missing more than anything was a candidate that was capable and even maybe more than just capable, but willing to communicate to the left, willing to talk to the to, to potential uh, voters that were, uh, you know, disenfranchised Bernie bros or, or identify as progressives. Um, I really see that as where our big crop of potential libertarian activists come from. And it's not, you know, I think people, a lot of people misidentify what the left really is. And the, the people that were, that I'm talking about are people who, again, identify as progressives, really just kind of see the, the current society as being completely unjust, unfair. They want things to, to be, um, to, they, they want more equity. They want to be able to afford uh, to be able to live. Uh, they don't want uh, corporations to be getting bailouts and all these kind of things. And so they've kind of latched on to Bernie because that's who he's talking to. He's the problem is, is he can't solve their problems, their, their problems, but we can. And so I just like to to be able to have that kind of outreach, talk to those people, bring those people into the party and more than just getting them to vote, vote for us. We need those people to be part of the liberty movement in order to to functionally grow the party. I think we've come kind of stagnant. We've been drawing from the conservative uh, right for way too long. I think it's hurting our progress. And in fact, it's there's some very, uh, you know, uh, people that that really don't belong in the liberty movement that come from the right. And uh, and I think I, I would like to certainly push those people out, the people that identify as alt-right, the racists, the, the blatant conservatives who, who don't adhere to libertarian principles. And so I just wanted to kind of bring that uh, maybe a little bit of purity, not really purity, but again, just somebody willing to talk to the left. That's me. Sure. Um, Mr. Vora, you're next. My name is Arvind Vora, and I'm running for president to end the welfare state and end the income tax. This culture has produced this government. And if we knock down this culture, this government today, then this culture will recreate this exact government tomorrow. Inside the libertarian movement for too long, we've been afraid of fighting the necessary culture war. And today, thanks to that, the two most popular front runners right now are people who don't want to cut government as far as I can tell, hardly at all, and have in fact called to grow it. I want to read to you something from Justin Amash, and this is his Reason Magazine interview. Now, Reason Magazine is about as libertarian-friendly a magazine as you're ever going to get. And here's what he says. He says, let me just get this over here. He says he calls for the expansion of some of a Medicaid-style system or something like that. He continues later on and says, but when you do things like that, it needs to be understood that the government will have to make decisions about what's covered and what's not. 
Both Amash and Judge Gray have called for UBIs. They've both supported government schools. Amash voted to literally increase government school spending. That's where this cowardice has gotten us. That's where this lack of principle has gotten us. We now have people who are calling for an increase in government when they're talking to us. Imagine what they're going to say when they're talking to anybody else. Today, in this great debate, we have people who have stood up for principle, people with a powerful vision, people like Adam Kokesh, people like Dan Berman. I'm so excited to be on, in this debate with both of you guys. But what this comes down to is a willingness to fight a culture war. I'm willing to fight that culture war. I'm willing to end the income tax, to end the welfare state, and get government out of all aspects of your life. And my website is BoatVora.com. Thank you, Mr. Vora. Um, our our next uh, candidate will be Sam Robb. Mr. Robb. Good evening, folks. My name is Sam Robb, and I am just some guy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, about this time last year, I took a look at the presidential race, and I decided that uh, I did not like the way that the country was going. I didn't like the way that the president was leading it, and I didn't like the way that the Democrats were proposing to take us. I became a libertarian in 2012, thanks to Mitt Romney. He convinced me to stay a Republican long enough to vote against him in the primary and then switch my party registration. And since that time, I haven't looked back. I'm not interested in growing the government. I'm not interested in establishing the legacy. What I'm interested in is seeing a country that is returned to its minimalist government roots where it started back in 1776. As president, my three priorities are going to be to reduce the size of government, to reduce and eliminate income tax for 50% of all Americans off the bat with a goal of eliminating the income tax entirely and to reform our immigration system and to return to an Ellis Island model of immigration where we welcome all those who care to come to our country to work and to struggle and to prosper just as our ancestors did, just as my grandparents did and help make our country great again. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rob. Um, our next um, speaker will be Adam Kokesh. Adam? Thank you, Chris, and thank you to the Libertarian Party of Kentucky for putting this on. And for everybody who is sticking with us through coronaphobia in these debates in this online primary, it's beautiful to see how the Libertarian Party is stepping up. My name is Adam Kokesh, and I'm running for president in order to take the federal government through a peaceful, orderly, responsible bankruptcy process that leaves us with 50 independent states and up to 562 sovereign native nations as the first step in localization, the path to a free society where you as an individual can opt out of any government because it's localized to the community level where it's transparent, accountable, customizable, customizable, and based on your values set up to meet your needs. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, which is a kind of a combat veteran, which is a nice thing to be putting forth when taking on our current commander-in-chief, Cadet Bone Spurs. I'm a small business owner. You might know me as Adam versus the man with my media production. And I think what we have here is an opportunity to have a breakout year for the Libertarian Party. We should be running to win and running with a platform that can unite all Americans like what I'm proposing in localization with the everybody gets what they want strategy. In some polls, Secession is already over 25% nationally. We have never had a presidential candidate score that high. We put secession on the ballot. We are immediately ahead of anywhere we have ever been as a party. In 2016, if not voting was counted as a vote for nobody, 
the electoral college results would have been Trump 21, Clinton 72, and nobody. In an epic landslide of historic proportions, 445 electoral votes. Let's give the American people what they want and win. Let's bring people together around freedom. Let's bring people together around a message based on respect and love for our fellow Americans. Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. Um, and finally, uh, Dan Beerman. Dan. Hey, so I'm Dan Taxationist Theft Berman. I changed my middle name by declaration because this is my own name. A lot of people ask that I go to the government and ask and beg for permission for them to change my name for me. No, it's not their name and free men don't ask for permission. So this is a very important principle to me. Um, I learned this several years ago when I got rid of my driver's license, when I stopped paying income taxes, that the government tricks us into doing a lot of things that we really don't need to do. It assumes that it has control over us and that it owns us. And if we recognize the truth, we recognize that that we are actually free in this country and that most of the control that the government has over us is through fear and manipulation, we can actually beat a lot of what they do against us. And I'm talking about the things that they do to us in the everyday. So um, everyone's been talking about how we're going to approach the left and the right. And of course, these are very important, but I'm not someone who sits around complaining about problems like a lot of libertarians. I'm somebody who comes up with solutions. And if you look at what most people vote for, they're not voting for somebody because they can see a problem the way they see it. They're voting for someone who can solve a problem for them. Now, libertarians kind of oversee this because we want somebody who's going to solve the problem of getting rid of the government for us. But most of the rest of the world is not concerned with getting rid of the government because they don't see that as the problem. They see a problem in they can't afford their health care. They can't afford their rent. They're worried about their job security. They're worried about someone else stealing their job. So what I have done is I've put together the new American dream. And this is an amazing platform that has support from both the left and the right. And what this does is this basically gets the government out of our hair. But at the same time, it explains how we're going to solve other people's problems. So many problems, uh, high rents, high taxes, unable to run your business, worried about unemployment and, and how you're going to retire. This fixes all of those problems. And it's really easy. Uh, the, the federal government used to be so small that nobody even knew it was there. And today, everybody depends on it. All we need to do is remove that dependency, but show people that there's a there's a safe path out of this where they will be taken care of and they don't have to live in fear. Thanks, Dan. Um, our next question um, will be to uh, Mr. Vora. Um, and here's the question, guys. Uh, do you believe it's more important to be on message and on platform or to earn votes and have a wide platform for spreading the message? Um, Mr. Bora, uh, the question is to you first, sir. So you just asked me if I think it's better to lie or tell the truth. And I'm going to say that it's better to tell the truth than to lie. And both for moral reasons and, and for strategic reasons. When you lie, you attract the wrong people to yourself. If, for example, we do what Congressman Amash is doing and tell everyone that libertarians support Medicaid and government schools, then we're going to attract some supporters of government schools and Medicaid. And we're also going to turn away people who don't want government schools and Medicaid to keep damaging health care and education in America. During the last three election cycles, we have voted for, we have nominated people who have brought in people into the Libertarian Party who didn't know what they were getting into. 
listen, we've spent the last couple of years talking about consent throughout the country. It's become a major hot topic in politics. And I've talked a lot about the principle of active, informed consent. That means, is the consent informed, as in does a person know what they're getting into, and have they actually said yes? And if active and informed consent is something that we as libertarians believe in, how could we do any less with our party? How could we go around trying to trick people into nominally becoming libertarian when they don't actually know what that means? How is that any different from lying to somebody to get something out of them? And so, no, I don't hold for a second to the idea that it's somehow good to lie or manipulate. In the short run, it might get you a couple extra votes while losing you probably more. But in the long run, it simply weakens the movement. Today, the reason that so many government, so many gov people believe that libertarians support government schools is we've kept nominating people who go around spreading that lie. The reason that so many libertarians, so many people believe that libertarians support UBIs and other forms of welfare is we've had candidates that have gone around and spreading that lie, gone around spreading that lie. Today, we are faced with that same choice. We can nominate candidates who will happily lie and misrepresent us, tricking people to joining us, or we can tell the truth and fight for what we believe in. Thank you, Mr. Porro. Um, Mr. Rodman, the question is to, to you next, sir. Okay. <clears throat> I believe uh, the question is, should we be standing on principles? Should we be standing on our platform? Or should we be pandering for votes? And the answer is the way we get votes is by standing on our platform and standing on our principles. When we reach out to the right, when we reach out to the left, when we reach out to the independent voters, they all have their problems. They all have their situations that they're looking for a solution. What they've been trained to do is to turn to government and say, hey, what can you do for me? You take most of our money. You take most of our time. What can, we, what can you do for us now since you've taken so much from us? The answer to that is one, we should stop taking things from people. We should stop taking their time. We should stop requiring them to fill out forms. We should stop requiring them to pay income taxes. We need to stop taking from people so that they can help in their communities. But two, we need to show them that government is not the solution to their problems. Government is the problem. You look at what's happened right now in the past couple of months with COVID-19, and you see that in a glaring bright light. Who... Who was it that actually issued contaminated test kits and setback testing? That was the CDC. Who was it that prevented work on testing mechanisms? That was the CDC. Who is it that has had to bypass government regulations and government agencies in order to import test kits for COVID-19 from out of, out of the country? That's are the states having to go around the federal government and accomplish what they need to do in order to take care of people. We need to communicate to people that our principles are solid. Our principles are that government is not the solution, government is the problem, and show them all the ways that that means exactly that in their life. When they deal with the IRS, when they deal with the DMV, when they deal with the VA, when they deal with whatever government agency they're dealing with, that their life would be so much better and so much simpler if that were out of the way and people were just taking care of each other. Thank you, Mr. Rob. The question next is to Mr. Kokesh. Mr. Kokesh? Well, Chris, that's a great question. And I, I got to say the way Arvin just knocked that out of the park from the get-go was perfect. I, I, I have no more virtue signaling to add. Yeah, are you asking us to lie and, and, and reap the short-term benefits of lying or tell the truth and live with integrity and success built on a solid foundation of principle? I think the answer there is really clear. And this is an, a, a, an important problem, an important question. 
for libertarians and for the Libertarian Party to answer. What we have seen in the last three cycles is that we have nominated someone who the old media can paint as a washed-up Republican. And if we do that for a fourth cycle in a row, we're toast. But more importantly, what we need is a message that actually has the principle embedded in it in practical policy. And that's what localization is. The difference between the Republicans and Democrats is like going off a cliff at 70 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. And if we nominate someone who doesn't really embody libertarian principles in their platform, then we're going to be saying, hey, we'll take you off the cliff at 10 miles an hour. Look at how and the American people smell the bullshit. They know that that's not a real alternative and they will be sucked into the lesser evil argument. The answer to this question is, as Arvin pointed out so beautifully, standing in truth, standing on principle. This is how we build a party. This is how we unite people around principle. And this is how we really win for liberty. Principles are pragmatic. They show us how we do things that are principled that lead to more pragmatic outcomes. There's no division here. We get the most pragmatic outcomes. We have the most impact. We free the most minds when we stand on libertarian principles. Thank you, Adam. Uh, our next question uh, is to Mr. Berman. Mr. Berman? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting question. And if the question is, telling the truth versus lying, then of course, telling the truth is the right way. But if the question is party versus principle, and this is the long running libertarian question, what's our priority, party or principle? Uh, like the little girl in the commercial, I wanna say, why not both? Why can't we have a candidate who has the principle but can grow the party at the same time? Why do we have to give up one to have the other? It's a false dichotomy. And really that's what this new American dream is about. This is about getting the left and the right on board with libertarianism because we don't have to shove it in their face and say, hey, you should be a libertarian. We can say, oh, I understand you have a problem. Let me show you an alternative way to solve it. And once they're sold on that solution, then you can tell them, by the way, you're probably a libertarian because this is a libertarian solution. That's how we grow the party. That's how we get people on board who generally hate libertarians because, oh, you don't like the poor or or you want you want to get rid of Social Security and my grandparents aren't going to have any money to survive. This These are real concerns that people have. And if we're going to assert our principles in a way that doesn't address those issues, then of course we're going to chase people away. But we don't need to do that. We can very much show principles and say, yes, we want to get rid of these programs, but here is how we're actually going to solve those problems so that when we get rid of those programs, nobody's going to be left out to dry. Everyone's going to have some stable foundation to live their lives on and everyone's going to get through this. And, and in fact, their lives are going to be better. Mr. Uh, Mr. Ellison, uh, the last, it's to you. Yes. So, I mean, I could, I could echo a lot of what everybody just said. And I think, um, you know, Part of what what uh, Arvin said, um, I think there's there's kind of an underlying thing to that. Aside from just it's this isn't an individual issue of should we be honest or should we lie. The the question is as a party, as a party, should we be honest or should we lie? Should we as a party run a candidate who is going to talk about libertarian principles or should we run a candidate who who we think is going to get popular vote? And I think that. We've tried getting the we ran Gary Johnson, who had a, a long executive career as, as being a governor. And he had a, a vice presidential candidate who was a governor. And we, we ran this this ticket that we thought like this. They have way more experience than the other candidates. This is a winning ticket. And uh, but we were lying. 
as a party, we were lying. They did not represent who we are as libertarians. And so I think that when we get to the issue of should we run on, on message or should we run to, to win votes, there's absolutely no question we should run on message because the, at the end of the day, the message is all we have. If anybody out there thinks that we're going to win an election for president in 2020, they, like, wake up. Like, it, it's not happening. Right. All we have right now is our messaging. And if we cheat on the messaging, we're only cheating ourselves. We need to run a candidate who not only is is willing to speak libertarian principles, but really understands them. And and unfortunately, I think we've got a latecomer to the race right now in Justin Amash who doesn't get it. And he'll convince everybody because he's read Hayek that he understands libertarian principles, but he just misses the mark so often. And, and you see it in his underlying issues where he talks about he gives you know, constitutional conservative talking points, but they're cloaked in libertarianism. Yeah, we want to add the drug war. Uh, federal government has no business being in the drug war. I mean, that's a lie. That's not a libertarian principle. That's a conservative principle, because what he's saying is that I don't have a problem with the drug war as long as the states are doing it instead of the federal government. That is, if we put forth a candidate who's willing to sell that message, we're lying. All right. Thank you, Mr. Ellison. Um, the next question is a we have a couple current event questions. Here's the first one. There's been a great deal of accusations recently between Trump and Biden about the White House coronavirus response. That we responded too late, that we did not take enough action, that the president should have exercised the Defense Production Act sooner to take over private business. If you were asked by a national media outlet to comment, what would you say about the White House's coronavirus response? And what would you have done differently if you were sitting in Trump's chair? Uh, the first uh, question will go to Mr. Rob. Mr. Rob? Well, <clears throat> this has been, uh, we've been asked this a lot, obviously. That's what's in the news. Um, first off, I already mentioned the government response to dealing with COVID-19 has really been horrible. Uh, you've got the CDC and the FDA fumbling around. You've got instances where the CDC has said, yes, you're able to go ahead and start working on some sort of vaccine or some sort of treatment, but the FDA has refused to release the virus for actual testing. Um, you've got problems with contaminated test kits. You've got problems with test kits that are not being approved. You've got problems with PPE, not making it where it should go, and the government confiscating it when it's trying to get to places where it's needed. Uh, and that's just at the federal level. You don't even want to talk about some of the issues that they had in New York, where uh, Cuomo and uh, the situation there is just absolutely horrible. They've really fumbled the ball, regardless of what the press tells you. Now, in a libertarian presidency, in a Samuel presidency, what you would have seen is a bunch of individual, individualized, decentralized, distrib distributed responses. Because instead of coordinating everything, instead of the federal government being a command center, it would be a coordination center, it would be a, a communication center. You would have had individuals and corporations and businesses making decisions about how to act based on the best information that they had at the time. Now, I think what would have happened honestly, would have been much what we saw at the beginnings of the, uh, the COVID-19 issue, where businesses started to shut down, started to cancel things long before the government actually acted, because they were interested in preserving their customers. They were interested in building goodwill. They were interested in taking care of their congregations in the matter of churches and synagogues and, and mosques. So individuals were doing what needed to be done before the government got it's act together, I'm being polite there. And what we're seeing now is that individuals are doing what needs to be done. They are reopening businesses. They are starting to get the economy moving again, despite what the government has said, because they are making those choices for themselves. Thank you, Mr. Rob. Uh, Mr. Kokesh, the next, uh, the next question is to you. 
Thank you, Chris. A lot of people have been asking this question lately, and it's really simple when you ask it as, how would a libertarian response be better than the current response? Well, it would be all the good stuff we see now, people coming together, people sharing information, people responding to demands and, and needs for personal protective equipment and for test kits and for cures and for vaccines without all the crappy parts, without the secrecy, without the sequestering of information, with Donald Trump saying we're going to conduct uh, deliberations in private with the CDC, without the government ripoff, without $6 trillion in liquidity, without them borrowing $6,000 in your name and giving you $1,200 and hoping that you're going to be grateful for it. I just want to underscore here that we are at a unique libertarian moment for America, where pretty much every American now is some kind of civil disobedience activist. These rules that they're trying to pass, the emergency orders, unenforceable, asinine, absolutely ridiculous. And now we have business owners standing up. We have salon owners and bar owners. We have gyms even opening up in defiance. We have surfers and paddleboarders and skateboarders. Even when they put sand in the skate parks, no, we are gonna go out and we are gonna exercise our rights. This is the opportunity. Will Linden in the comments there, I noticed, said that the FDA has been less than useless. No, it has been harmful. It has been destructive. And if you look at the work of Dr. Mary Ruert, it has been responsible for over 40 million deaths in its manipulation of the prescription drug approval and distribution process. This has to end. The central coercive authority that is behind all of this, we need to pull the plug on it, put our foot down collectively as a country and say, we are not going to put up with this crap anymore. This is the opportunity for the Libertarian Party to say, look, we support your civil disobedience. We can put up someone who's been arrested in civil disobedience more times than I can count, who can say, I relate, and I'm also willing to put my life on the line to do what is right before what is legal. Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. Mr. Berman? Yes. So I, I think the most important thing to recognize is that government is the problem. Whenever a question like this comes up, there's always, well, what are you going to do about it? And that implies that the government can do something about it. It implies that government is going to have the right answer. It never does. What are they doing now? They're telling us, hey, we should listen to the experts. They're really smart people. They're doctors. They have years and years of experience researching all these amazing things. We should listen to them. But what are they really saying? They're saying, listen to this expert and completely ignore those experts that have alternate opinions on what's going on. When I was a kid, I learned that chicken, raw chicken has salmonella and it can be very dangerous. And so when you cook, always wash your hands, wash the plates that you had the raw chicken on and everything else. Where did I learn this? It wasn't from government. It was because it was all over the news for a certain period because of outbreaks and everything else. These were different news organizations that were telling us without government how to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves from, from certain viruses and bacteria and everything else. It's That's what the news did because it was that was their business. That's how they get viewers. It was private. It was it was it was. Um, it was incentivized by money and it worked really well. Now, what is government doing? They're giving us one expert with no opposing opinion and they're telling us, listen to this expert. Why? Because this expert allows us to implement a plan that's going to impose control over every single one of you. 
We have to stop looking at that. We have to stop looking towards the government for answers. There are experts out there and we should listen to them, but a lot of them have differing opinions on this and it's not easy to say one is smarter than the other or one knows better. We have to consider all of the information that they have at their disposal and we have to consider their agendas. And we have to consider that whatever plan the government tells us needs to be implemented by force because that's the only way they know how to do it we have to remember good ideas don't require force and that's all the government knows thank you mr berman uh mr ellison yeah i think this is kind of almost gets back to the same point we were making last time like what what do we what would we do differently well we'd be honest like we tell the truth we'd we would allow the information to flow we'd we would not prop up the experts that we want to tell a narrative that we want to tell. We would make information available. And the idea that, you know, if do we really need to remind people that like, hey, the government really screwed this up. Like, look at everything the government does. They literally screw everything up. If you give a problem, if you can figure out the worst way to do it in your head, the government can do it worse. And so as as libertarians, you know, we would be backing up. And instead of saying, well, we would cut this red tape and cut this red tape, the red tape would already be cut. The FDA would be gone. The free market would, would have provided the test kits that needed to be provided in order to properly address the situation. But if we were able to get accurate information out to the people and just in, encourage people, if they have accurate information and we provide them with the, the experts, they're gonna, people are going to make intelligent, at least informed decisions. We, we want to give people information so they can do the right thing rather than us telling them what the right thing is. Because if we tell them as go we as government, like like I'm ever going to be government, if we tell them, if government tells them uh, what to do, it's th there's an automatic distrust. And so it's just a matter of here's the information, here's available to uh, the available to the information on the international community, from the CDC, from everywhere that, that we can find it. And it's open and available to everybody. Everybody can make their own decisions. Everybody can make intelligent decisions encourage people to get testing, practice the, the, the appropriate social distancing. Now the, the hole we've dug right now, it makes sense for people to be able to get back out and do things. I mean, I, I'd really like to get back out and get a haircut. I mean, I got a mess going on here, but, but I can't because I got to wait for the government to roll back all the shit that they put out, put out on us. Where if we were just encouraging people to be, to make intelligent, informed decisions, you know, I would know at this point, okay, you know what? It's probably safe for me to go get a haircut. I'll wear a mask and I'll be careful when I'm there. And so uh, it, it just comes to a, a point of uh, being open and being uh, transparent with the public. Mr. Ellison. Mr. Bora. If you threw out all the laws of war, all the laws of human morality and decency, and you just were at war with the country and you just wanted to hurt them, you didn't care how you did it, the worst thing you could do is block access to medicine and block access to doctors. And countries don't do this. I mean, the United States doesn't do this to other countries because it's a violation of decency. It's a violation of Geneva Conventions. It's a violation of international law. But what the U.S. government will refuse to do to other countries, to its worst enemies in times of war, it's doing to the American people in times of peace. Today, we're facing a medical shortage. But there's a reason for that. Foreign doctors aren't allowed to practice medicine in the United States. We're not Americans are not allowed to buy medicines from other countries. If you want to build a hospital in America, you need to get permission from your competitor. Now imagine if the federal government or the U.S. Army prevented a foreign nation from building a hospital, how angry we would be. And that's what's happening over here. Consider today the longest you would ever wait in a restaurant and compare that to the shortest time you would ever expect to wait in a hospital. 
Those are the results of the government intentionally creating medical shortages. They've been doing that with help from the AMA, from the AMA and they've been doing it at our expense. What I would be to have done is gotten rid of all of that. If you want to build a hospital, go ahead, build it. If you are, are come, want to come from another country, Switzerland, Germany, Japan, wherever, practice medicine in America, go ahead. Americans, if you want to buy medicines from another country, that's your natural right as an adult to choose how to treat yourself, to choose how to treat your own ailments. This comes down to trusting the free market. And in this case, we have seen that the free market can be relied on. In fact, in desperation, now, governors have turned to the free market, allowing foreign doctors to practice medicine, allowing people with licenses that have expired because they've retired to practice medicine. That's what we should do. Get government out of it and let the free market provide what it provides best. Thank you, Mr. Borough. I knew that was going to happen. All right. Our next question, Mr. Kokesh, and it's a new question. Um, earlier this week, the LNC took action to postpone the May convention to what looks like an early July convention and not to hold an online convention. And most recently, there's a push to potentially hold just the presidential and vice presidential portion of the agenda online. I'm not going to repeat all the back and forth. I think everyone's probably aware of it. All of you are and have been involved in the party sometime. And so I'm sure you are seeing what we're seeing on social media and elsewhere. What do you think they should have done in terms of postponing it or holding it? Um, what do you say to the decisions that have been made and that look like they may be made? And do you think that the decisions are good or bad for your campaign if you're the nominee? Adam, the question goes to you first. Well, that's a big question, Chris, and there's so much background to untangle on this. I think it is a core foundational component of our party that we meet in person every two years to decide national party business bylaws, elect national officers, and every four years nominate our presidential and vice presidential nominees. The idea of having this vote online at the last minute seems to reek of corruption, of an attempt to manipulate the vote, to manipulate the process. And libertarians should be able to say, we're going to stand up to this nonsense. We are not going to be bullied. We are not going to be coward. My position would have been we go ahead with the national convention in Austin as planned and make appropriate accommodations for people who want to conduct distancing and uh, the extreme hygiene measures that some people have embraced. There's no reason that we can't do this. Everybody saying that we can't is making an unjustified excuse to manipulate this process in some way. If we were unable to do it at the hotel where we were booked in Austin, I would say you do it just outside the city limits or at another venue. If you have to do it with desks six feet apart, then you do it with the desks six feet apart. We can do this. To give in to this fear is absolute nonsense. I shared a meme today. It was George Washington flipping the bird. Of course, it was edited. George Washington, I don't think, was ever painted actually flipping the bird. But it says, we fought a revolution during a small smallpox pandemic. Y'all some bitches. And I, I hate to, uh, you know, introduce that profanity here, but I think it's appropriate to call people out who are attempting to sabotage the party by making us irrelevant, by giving us a vote that we can't have confidence in. So my position now is that we should have an in-person convention as soon as is practically possible. I think if we had the party and the leadership more behind us as primary candidates, we would have the same media bump as the old parties get from their primary contests. As it is, we're generally behind on that. The party has a long ways to go in organizing and meeting up for, with that. But uh, a small delay at this point to do it right, 
absolutely critical. Oh gosh, uh, Mr. Berman, the question is to you next. Yes, yeah, so I actually agree with most of what Adam said. From the beginning, once these lockdowns started happening, I advocated that we have this convention no matter what it takes because that's that's the attitude that we have to have. I mean, forget, forget about the whole pandemic. Forget about corona. The cards are stacked against us. And if we don't have the willpower to come out and say, whatever it takes, we are going to make this happen. We are going to win elections. We're going to beat this government beast. If we don't have that attitude, we're just going to lose. And so when there's something so small like this convention, and I get it, there's a big pandemic. A lot of people are dying. A lot of people have a lot of fear about what's going on. And some people think it, there's not that much to be afraid of. Like Adam said, we can take precautions. We can distance. We can we can uh, take sanitary measures. We could do it outside, which a lot of the experts are saying, even outside, you can't transmit it that well because of the open air. So there's so many things to take into account. But of course, we need to make this happen. We need to keep fighting. We cannot give up. And the longer we delay, the more foothold we lose. And we keep slipping back. And we are not in a position to lose anything. We are already far behind. We need to fight. We need to constantly, every day, wake up and put in 120%. Thank you, Mr. Berman. Uh, Mr. Ellison? So I think there's a, there's a couple parts to this question. One, I think the LNC made the absolute right choice by canceling the convention in Texas. It's completely impractical, impossible. That's why they invoked the impossibility clause. We would have delegations that would not be able to show up due to the law in the state of Texas requiring people to self-quarantine for 14 days after travel. And so to think that that convention in Austin could have gone forward over Memorial Day weekend is ridiculous. Be certainly, if anybody tried it or advocated for that seriously, be completely irresponsible. However, I think that it is important that the convention happens on Memorial Weekend. I think we cannot afford to lose time. I've been saying this since back in March. This is not going to be cleared up anytime soon. We're, this pandemic is not going away. We're going to be in the same situation in one way or another. Mass gatherings are going to be, if not prohibited, they're going to be highly discouraged. And our, a, a large portion of our delegation is unlikely to show up. And that's not the that's not what we're looking for. We want participation. We want the delegates to be able to participate. But most importantly, we want to choose a presidential ticket as soon as possible. We're already behind. Our convention is already scheduled later than it should be. We need to nominate our presidential candidate. The only way to do that at this point effectively and efficiently is to do an online convention. There's no other choice. We have to do electronic voting. We have. And what's going to happen is the LNC is punting this. They're kicking it down the road. They're going to make a decision this weekend when it's going to be sometime before July. And then you know what's going to happen come the end end of June? They're going to say, you know what? It's still not possible. Let's do it online. And we will have lost two months of, of, uh, of campaigning for president. We cannot afford to do that. The LNC needs to make the right decision. If I was on the LNC, I promise you, I would have voted that we would be holding the convention electronically the Memorial Day weekend. It's possible and it's still possible. Mr. Ellison, Mr. Vora. Adam brought up a, a really good point, and, and largely I don't agree with Adam's position on this. this. is one area where we do disagree, but he brought up a really important point, which is that this whole time, for two years now, the LNC has intentionally refused to display the vast, vast majority of debates on LP.org, on its Facebook site, through its Twitter feed, in stark contrast to what the DNC and the RNC have done. They've promoted the debates with their candidates. The LNC has failed to do that. 
the supposed the the reason in my view is to do was that was the reason that that was done in my view was to make it as easy as possible for Justin Amash to come in at the last minute. This doesn't require a vote of the entire LNC, by the way. The chair by himself can direct the staff to post whatever he wants them to post on LP.org, on the Facebook page, and on Twitter. And why this is even more telling, and I do hope to hear from Chairman Sarwark on this, is that Chairman Sarwark, in addition to refusing to, post to, refusing to post the debates, indicated that he would be excited to be, or he would be strongly willing to consider being Justin Amash's running mate. And again, that to me is a big problem. Now we're in a difficult situation because if we push this to July, then it would the only people that could possibly have a prayer of getting the momentum would realistically be somebody that has a huge amount of name recognition, someone like like Justin Amash. Uh, Adam, maybe you could do it, but but honestly, I think it would it, it might even be out of the scope of your well-earned, a very large media presence. So I believe that we should do this. I agree with, with Ryan on this one. I, I, I believe that we should do this electronically. I don't think there's going to be a vaccine or cure out by July. I think we should do it electronically Memorial Day weekend, if not sooner. I think there's ways we can do it securely, safely, reliably. I think we just have a few practice sessions to get where we need to be. And that will make it an actual reasonable contest for any one of the candidates to have the required time, media boot, etc., to have a real intense campaign at one of the hardest times in American history. Okay, thank you, sir. Mr. Rob. <clears throat> Part of the problem that I think we have here right now is that libertarians are reasonable. We look at the situations that we're in, we imagine how things are going to go, and pretty much the entire, I think the entire body of the Libertarian Party, with a few exceptions, looked at this COVID-19 situation and said, oh, there's no way that they locked down the entire country over this. So we said, oh, yeah, sure. OK, maybe there's some concern. Maybe there's some worry. But the, con the convention is going to be able to happen. And it wasn't until later that it became very apparent that we had essentially what is hysteria in this country. We had people worrying ab about what amounts to the common cold. Now, when it became apparent that we were dealing with something that was not nearly as serious as what was originally thought, then we should have seen government easing restrictions. But in all honesty, what happens when the government makes a mistake? They cover it up. They double down. They make sure that they uh, do everything in their power to let you understand that they were right in the first place. And that's exactly the reaction that we're seeing. So we have two choices here. We could either go forward with the convention as scheduled, which would be horrible in terms of optics. I absolutely agree with uh, with Brian Ellison on that. Horrible in terms of optics, horrible in terms of showing compassion, horrible in terms of, of getting our message out. Because what people would see was, oh, look at these people risking our lives. We should have been planning for a virtual convention well before this time, because as we know, the president and vice presidential candidates are not going to have a whole lot of time to campaign. That's why Dan Berman, that's why I, that's why other individuals have suggested moving back the nomination process so that our candidate does have enough time to get out there and get in front of the American people and reach the American people instead of spending their time during these critical months talking to delegates and trying to get the nomination. We really absolutely do need to have an in-person convention. That is critical. But we need to do it in a way that shows that we are concerned about Americans, that we care about their concerns, that we are capable of doing what the government can't. And having this convention, having the election of our presidential and vice presidential candidates online in a reasonable manner and being willing to postpone the convention 
in person to a later date to accommodate the needs of the individuals and the, and the needs of the, the delegates. I think All I right. have a rebuttal Thank you from for, Adam. Yes. Yes. How much time for the rebuttal, Chris? Hello? How much time for the rebuttal? One minute. All right. I'm just, I guess if Chris is muted, I'm just going to go ahead here and say the people who are rushing us into a digital vote are clearly trying to use fear to manipulate the process. It is really sad to see people calling themselves libertarians engaging in the same kind of manipulation that government does to take our rights. What we have seen from our chair, and I'll name him here, Nick Sarwark, manipulating the process, trying to get to a digital vote, as Arvin pointed out, clearly has manipulation behind it. I can't imagine that Daniel Hayes, the chair of the Convention Oversight Committee, doesn't have four or five fallback plans already, because that's what he's told me. That's what we have. This is totally reasonable to go ahead with an in-person convention. We cannot be the party of cowards, especially next to the old parties who are planning on having their conventions in person. We have more candidates running right now. We have a team of wonderful candidates getting a message out. We don't need to cut it down to two in order to do this in a hurry and rush the process so that it can be centralized, corrupted, and done behind closed doors with secrecy. But really, can we be the party of cowards next to hairdressers in Texas who are opening up their businesses in civil disobedience? Really? We are going to be the ones who bow to the pressure, who bow to government when it comes to this martial law? Really? I sincerely hope not. And I will be doing everything I can between now and Saturday with this meeting and between now and the convention to ensure that a libertarian national convention happens in person. And I urge everybody else to do the same. All right. So, I mean, if we let's, let's talk about fear. Let's talk about fear mongering. What you just heard right now is fear mongering. What you just heard is Adam Kokesh calling everybody who's immunocompromised, who's potentially sick, who cares about their family, who, who understands that this disease is real and that it's killing people. And he's calling them cowards. That's fear mongering. What we need to do is we need to we need to be intelligent. We need to make smart decisions. And the smart decision is to be inclusive. The smart decision is to look back and, and the fact that we knew some of us, certainly I think Arvin and I even spoke about it back in March, nothing was going to change by May. We should have been planning this all along. We should have been planning an online convention all along. So instead of pretending like things are something massive is going to change between now and July, we need to take the steps that we need to take that are practical, that are reasonable, and that will resonate with, with the people, not just within the party, but the public. Like Sam said, if we hold a, uh, we try and hold a convention in defiance of the law, we're just going to look like the Trump guys that show up with the Nazi flags. All right. What we, this is not about fear mongering. This is about making responsible decisions for our delegates. Uh, Adam and I definitely disagreed on this very early on when, when before anything was formally shut down, I voluntarily stopped my campaign travel because I didn't want to put people who I respected at risk. I knew I was going state to state. 
I knew a lot of the people that I was talking to were older and immunocompromised. Today, we're basically, imagine if the LP had a convention where we said, well, we're not going to have any wheelchair ramps. We're going to have them on the 15th floor. And if you can't go 15 flights of sta stairs, too bad. You know, people who are super awesome and tough, people like Adam Kokesh or Justin Amash, Dan Berman, who are like, you know, young and fit and awesome, they can do it. But the rest of you guys deal with it. That would have been seen as barbaric. And to me, this is a similar area where, I don't agree with the quarantines or house arrests or whatever you call them. I don't agree with those rules one bit. I think they're absolutely absurd. But the idea that we're going to try to create a convention where huge sections of the delegates simply can't attend, I have a big problem with that. That's why I pledged openly on social media that if there, and I listed a few people, Andy Craig, uh, Evan McMahon, who are on the other side, who generally oppose me, and, but they have, are immunocompromised, that if they can't attend, I'm not going to attend either. This is something where we show our compassion and our innovation, not just our bravery. Compassion and innovation are the most brave and most important things that we do as libertarians. Uh, okay, I think Chris is out. Dan Berman, you wanted a rebuttal. You got one minute. Yeah, so I think it's really important to say that there's no such thing as a perfect system, especially when it comes to this. We can argue about whether we're going to do it in person or electronically. If you do it in person, there are people who can't make it because they can't afford the, the plane ticket or the hotel. If we do it electronically, people are going to complain that their Internet's not working. There, nothing is a perfect system. But we have to ask, what is our priority? Is it to make sure that we have somebody nominated so we can move forward? Absolutely. So when I say, yeah, we should have gone through with our first in, uh, with our first in-person debate, that absolutely would have been the best. What do we have to do now? Do we have to do it electronically? Fine. But I would have liked to have seen, and I personally would have done this, I would have gotten arrested coming from Mexico to Texas to the debate just to prove a point that our government is willing to arrest people to prevent our convention from happening, to prevent Americans from having choice within their democracy that's, that's protected by all these constitutional rules that's supposed to give them choice and instead they just have this illusion. That would really point that out. But most importantly, we need to get out there, we need to campaign, we need to create new libertarians. We need to be visible and we need to have a visible selection process and for that we have completely failed. And as Arvin pointed out so many times, we have failed that system. We've lost an entire year because the national LP has failed to organize something where the entire American public can see what's going on and take part in this selection process. All right. Thank you very much for the, the audience who's wondering where the good looking Chris went and why you're stuck with me. Chris is having some connection problems. My name is Dan Fishman. I'm going to start moderating. Uh, and since I didn't have any questions prepared, I'm going to go to the section. Oh, wait, I see Chris. I am off the hook. All right. Sorry about that. I was, uh, I had a serious connection issue there. All right. We've got a, uh, uh, our individual questions. Our first one is to Mr. Um, Berman. Um, well, I think we just covered this, but we're gonna cover it again. Um, with the spread of COVID-19, many delegates feel uncomfortable attending an in-person convention due to health issues or state quarantine laws. What steps do you feel the LNC should take to ensure a timely nomination while respecting bylaws and the delegates? 
I think at this point, um, everyone's considered that the convention has canceled. So yes, an electronic convention is going to be the best way to go. I proposed a hundred different ways um, to, to make this happen. I know um, Dan Hayes has proposed, proposed a lot of different ways and a lot of other people have been very creative in figuring out how to make this happen. But like I said, this is such a small problem in the big picture because while we're arguing about how we're going to hold our convention, we're losing time that we could be campaigning. We're losing time that we could be now nationally publicizing even this debate right here and this debate right here and any of the other debates that have been put on by any state party have not been highly publicized by the national LP. And I think that is a huge loss. We have lost over an entire year. I've been in this over a year. Adam Kokesh has been in this over a year. Arvind Vora, so many candidates, so many great candidates have been out there spreading this message of liberty with absolutely no help from the national LP. And I'm sorry to speak out against them for that, but we need to recognize that that, that is a much more important decision that was made against us than which day we're going to hold our convention. We could have decided six months ago that we're going to hold our convention in July or August or September. And it really wouldn't have made that big of a difference if we had the party out there helping us campaign, helping us, helping America see this nomination process. Sure. Um, the next question is going to go to Mr. Ellison. Um, Mr. Ellison, in 2018, you ran for the Michigan, uh, I think it was the 18th uh, U.S. House seat. Uh, you ran on a campaign of arming the homeless. Um, it was an A campaign. It was an on-platform campaign. Um, I think you participated in three uh, debates. And the consequences of that campaign uh, were one point. 0.8% vote total. Do you view that as a successful as a successful campaign? And should we expect if you're the nominee a similar result, which would result in the loss of ballot access in about a quarter of our states? Well, I don't, you know, do I feel like it was successful? Absolutely. I mean, I, again, just being able to participate in the debates, being able to speak with people and having the, the feedback that I got was, ab I, could, I could tell you it was successful. Now, if you put it in the framework, it was the eighth congressional district and it was the most competitive uh, congressional race in the state of Michigan in that election cycle. And I think the combined, the, the two big party candidates spent somewhere somewhere north of $20 million combined in that election. I, I mean, I spent, uh, I think about six grand, maybe most of it out of my own pocket. And so I think, I think we did pretty good. Like the fact that we, that, that I was on stage next to a sitting congressman and, and had, had him pointing out in debates where I was right and where, uh, where he agreed with me. And the, it was in a race. We strategically picked the tight race. We almost covered the spread. So I think that, um, yeah, I think it was it was successful. Would I pretend to speculate what what my national campaign would look like? Absolutely not. I have no idea what what how much the Libertarian Party could get behind somebody like me, somebody who actually stands up. We haven't seen a candidate like that, right? We would. I'm not a Republican, so uh, I, I don't know what it would look like. But I'll tell you what, it it wouldn't look like it. It wouldn't look like the candidates that we've run in the past, and we wouldn't get a surge of Republicans who join the party for six months during the election cycle and then leave for four years. Sure. All right, the next question um, will be going to Mr. Vora. Um, Arvin, when you were the vice chair of the party, uh, there were a number, I'm gonna talk about some of them tonight, there were a number of controversial things that you said and did. And one of them dealt with the age of consent. Um, and um, the question that I have for you is, are you comfortable um, plat or, or campaigning, um, and would you campaign as a presidential candidate on repealing all age of consent laws so that four-year-old 
40-year-olds could have sex with three-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, or nine-year-olds. It's a bit of a mischaracterization, in my opinion, but let's let's actually answer that question. When we look at the question of consent, we're going to have to say either the government is going to make that decision. In other words, we think the government's smarter. We think the government should make those choices that if something is important enough, as, as important as that, the government should step in. That's one way to look at it. And if you believe that, if you believe the government should handle things when they get that important, well, you know what? Education is also important. Maybe the government should handle that. Immigration is important. The government should handle that. Welfare, the, 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 the food and income of people is important. Maybe the government should handle that. And that's exactly what the current two frontrunners are saying. They believe that healthcare is important, so the government should handle it. Uh, Gray and Amash both support UBI. You know why? Income is important, so the government should handle that too. So this isn't a question of do I think that 40-year-olds should be having sex with three-year-olds? No, of course I don't. It be, it's the question of what should we do instead of government? And this is a deep question. This is a question that's been considered by some of the most important libertarian thinkers of the last decades. Murray Rothbard, Walter Block, Mary Ruart. Mary Ruart in 2008, by the way, because she talked about this issue just as she talked about every other issue, this was the issue she was attacked on too. I'm not the first candidate and I'm not going to be the last because you could bring this charge against any anarchist, any voluntarist candidate who will honestly and frankly tell you that government has no place in making personal or important decisions of any kind. My actual position is that consent must be active and it must be informed. A three-year-old couldn't possibly give informed consent. It's too complex an issue. A 10-year-old, I strongly doubt it. The second part of adulthood is that I, and I personally believe, this is different from, from Dr. Ruert and, and Murray Rothbard, is that you should be a biological adult. So 10-year-old is not really going to be a biological adult. The final piece is I believe somebody should be an economic adult. That means able to provide for themselves and provide for a family. And listen, if you can provide for a family, no one on earth has the right to tell you that you can't start one. Thanks, sir. Um, Mr. Rob, the next question is yours. Um, and it is, we went to your website today and we looked, um, we looked it up. Um, and you support retaining uh, payments from the federal government to the states. Um, retaining the EPA, um, I suppose re um, replacing the income tax and imposing a flat tax, uh, particularly on those that make uh, less than 50 or no taxes for under $50,000, but taxes mm -hmm. for, for those over 50000 And I guess the question is, that those seem to be a number of off-platform positions. Why do you think that you're the right guy to be the spokesman for our party as the presidential nominee? Okay. Actually, fantastic question. Part of my campaign, a big part of it, has been the idea of taking small incremental steps. In order to get a libertarian candidate elected as president, we are going to need to pull votes from the left and from the right. We need to show them that libertarian ideas and libertarian ideals are the solutions to their problems. And we don't do that by going, going out and saying, hey, we're going to abolish the federal government. We're going to start slashing, getting rid of all these agencies. We're going to fire tens of thousands of people because that's scary. That's, that's actually terrifying. Even small changes, small institutional changes can be terrifying to individuals. And it can block the idea of change until you get them to buy in and understand, yeah, I'm involved here. I am helping make this change happen. So a lot of those positions, uh, for example, talking about the income tax. One of the things that even as a even as a Republican, 
uh, I always wonder why in the world are we taxing people who are struggling to take care of their families? And when you look at it, the lowest, the people who own less, earn less than $50,000 a year, their total you know, tax burden, they pay for maybe one or two departments in the government. If we stop wars overseas, if we stop the war on drugs, they don't have to be paying for, for that. And they don't have to be paying any taxes whatsoever. That is a small concrete example of, hey, here we go. We're going to show you that the government can survive without taxing half of the people in the United States. That's a pretty big, impressive step, I think, to show people. And who doesn't want to see their neighbors not pay taxes? If you're a Democrat, you're looking at people and saying, hey, they need their money. They're, they're, they're oppressed. They, you know, they're barely making it by you know, with, the, with the corporations you know, running them into the ground. If you're a Republican, you're looking at it saying, hey, these people are working hard. They deserve to keep their money. That's something that you can use to bring people together and show them that libertarian ideas work. And all the rest of the policy positions that you see, they are little steps, little, ch little changes that we can use to show people that liberty is the solution to their problem. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Uh, Mr. Kokesh, the next question is to you. Um, you indicated on a video today that you feel certain LNC members are either government operatives or being blackmailed into favoring an online convention due to state health restrictions affecting delegates. Are there any specific allegations you want to make against any specific members of the LNC? No, definitely not. And I want to point out that it is very typical for law enforcement agents when setting people up to use paid informants to bully people into turning against their friends and neighbors and family and loved ones. And what we are doing with the Libertarian Party, at very least, is taking on the duopoly. And these are parties with multi-hundred million dollar annual budgets. Yeah, they got room for black ops. Of course, there's going to be infiltration, subversion, and we need to be looking out for this. Anybody who's watching, who's an activist, who cares about this kind of thing, if you don't know what COINTELPRO is, counterintelligence program, please look it up. There's a great Wikipedia article. It's a good place to start on this FBI program set up to subvert activists, including libertarians, as has happened in the past with the FBI in the 70s with infiltration. But I want to go back for a second with the rest of my time to hear these arguments for the online convention to hide behind the immunocompromise is to give in to the fear of a virus that we should not be afraid of. Uh, just a second ago, Chris, no offense, we lost you as the moderator, right? We have the technology, but we don't have the practice. Anybody saying at the last second we need to have a digital convention is seeking to manipulate this or is being roped into something that is against the best interests of the party. The people who can't attend the annual convention or biannual conventions we should be concerned with are the povertarians, the people who can't afford to stay at a swanky hotel or make the travel, and we should be encouraging activists to participate without having to spend a ton of money. I think that's what we should be more concerned with rather than this new fear that the government has told us we have to be afraid of for the benefit of the elderly and you know, compromise. The Mr. Kokesh. Adam's dropped out. Uh, I think he's lost his connection. We can bring him back okay. later. Should we give him a second or should I go on to the next question? I'll go on to the next person. Okay. The next question is for Mr. Ellison. Um, Mr. Ellison, you're, um, you are known to be involved with the uh, particular caucus in the party, the Audacious Caucus. Um, and there's a couple of things they do um, that we're aware of, um, edgy things. Um, 
I think waving sex toys around in national conventions, I believe um, one of the other things that happened in 2016 was Mr. Weeks and his um, strip show on the stage that we all saw. Um, I'm, I'm curious, do you um, support those things and do you believe that they advance the cause for the party? Well, I think that, do, do I, this is a really tough question. Do, would I do it myself? No. Was I waving sex toys at the, at the convention? No. Was I in on the planning to wave the sex toys at the convention? But you know what? It, the, the point, if anybody's got such a stick up their ass that they have a problem with any of that stuff, they're in the wrong place. Right. People, when we are a party about individual freedom, if if anybody within our party has a hard time with what James Weeks does, like, I don't know what to tell you. Look at yourself. You know, the reality is, is here we here in, in 2016 as a party at the time that James Weeks stripped, the delegation had just finished nominating the worst vice presidential candidate in certainly in recent history in, in Bill Weld. Like looking back at that, that, what a horrible decision that was to nominate Bill Weld, right? And I think all of us can look back and say, yeah, you know what? The delegates really screwed up in that one. Well, you know what? James Weeks was on top of it. He knew they screwed up right then, right? And and he made a point of saying, you know what? If if the if the prags within this party, and I not mean to call anybody, if the people that supported Bill Weld are are willing to embarrass him by putting up this obviously non-libertarian candidate, then you know what? He's going to be a libertarian on the stage. If they have a problem with libertarianism and they want to bring in uh, washed up Republicans to run for candidates, then he's going to show them what a libertarian is. And so he stripped on stage. Do I have a problem with it? Not at all. By the way, I, I voted for Larry Sharp, you know, in the final round, just <laughs> whatever that's worth. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mr. Vora, the next question is to you, sir. I've got another one um, uh, for you, and this deals with uh, another one of these controversial things that happened uh, during your tenure as vice chair. One of the things that um, you said, and I, I want to get your take on it um, because some people are concerned about it, and they asked me to ask the question, Sure. involves school boards. And your position on schools is pretty clear to anybody that has followed you um, or looked at your business. But one of the things you said um, was that somebody ought to go in, I believe, and take a gun into a school board and, and you know, maybe use it in a school board meeting. And the concern was, is that not a violation of the non-aggression principle? And how do you respond to that? Uh, right now, I feel like there, there's, a, there's a famous clip of, of, uh, of Lenny Bruce talking about how he has to go in and defend the FBI agent who was arresting him, his act, because the FBI agent summarized his performance a little bit differently than he'd actually done it. So the situation you're talking about was me posting in a private group in MeWe, not even on Facebook, and posting a poorly considered joke. It was, it was meant to be humorous. It wasn't humorous. I recognized that pretty much immediately. I took the post down. I apologized publicly both on MeWe and on Facebook, and I immediately retracted that, and I apologized for it, and I'll apologize for it again if that'll make people feel better. That's not my position. It's not something that I believe, and I don't believe in any kind of violence of any kind. But that said, many of the other things that I said, I don't take back at all. I absolutely do not take back my position that government schools are welfare for the middle class. They are. It's stolen money being used to create dependency. I'm not going to take back that I think that teachers do, that public school teachers are doing more harm than good. I'm not going to take back 
that teachers who are teaching common core are failing as educators because if you cannot hold yourself to truth and excellence, you have no business in education. I'm not going to take back when I said that parents who dump their kids in public schools are failing their responsibilities as parents because if you're dumping your kids in the worst education known to man, then you are failing absolutely as a parent. I'm not going to take back that I want to abolish government schools right away, day one, no exceptions whatsoever. I'm not going to take back when I said that the that that when people talked about school lunches, that turning a bad school into a bad restaurant is not a good idea. I'm not going to take that back either. I'm not going to take back when I said that Common Core is, is the most worthless, idiotic math program whatsoever. I'm not going to take back when I said that homeschooling is the best form of education and that getting government completely out of education is the right way to go. And I I will not take back that any government involvement in education is wrong and that we need to separate school and state permanently. Um, our next question is to Mr. Rob. Um, Mr. Rob, I've, again, back to your website. Uh, we've looked at it. Uh, it looks like you intend to retain parts of the federal government. And so I've got a two-part question for you. What parts are you proposing we keep and how do you propose that we fund those parts consistent with the non-aggression principle? Okay, well, first of all, what parts do we keep? We have to keep the parts that we're in the middle of dismantling, the ones that we haven't gotten around to yet. I know that the, the, some candidates like to say, oh yeah, we'll just go ahead and end everything. We'll just end social security right away. Then you've got to answer the question, okay, to the, the young mother that uh, wrote to me and emailed me early on in my campaign and said, hey, I like your plan for Social Security about winding it down because my husband and I have two disabled children. We depend on Social Security right now. We don't know what we would do without that. Now, it's fantastic to say, yeah, we should have a voluntary society. We should have a situation where voluntary charities are helping people with these problems and that we're not worrying about whether the federal government is going to step in. The sad truth is that right now we're in a situation where people have, rightly or wrongly, put their faith and trust in the government. And we need to respect that and we need to honor the commitments that the government has made on the behalf of the American people to these individuals and to, the, to these families. As best we can, for as long as it takes for us to get them off of a sick, twisted government program and onto something that can actually help them with their lives, it, whether that's through voluntary charity, whether that is through community aid, whether that is through uh, friends coming together to help them, whatever it is, we need time to make that happen. That means that we're going to need to keep aspects of the government in place. Then there's aspects of the government that honestly, as a minarchist, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not one who, who advocates for the dissolution of all government. I believe that the, the federal court system is important. I believe that having a consistent set of laws across our 50 states is, is critical. I believe that there are certain uh, agencies like the uh, certain agencies like the uh, EPA that really serve a unique purpose because even if you start talking to libertarians, it's hard to distinguish, okay, how are we going to deal with the, ask, with the idea of pollution? How are we gonna deal with the idea of you know, people harming the environment when they're not doing immediate harm right there next to somebody? So having an oversight committee can help there. Thanks, Mr. Rob. Um, Mr. Kokesh, the next question is to you. Um, you have recently chosen John McAfee as your running mate. Um, and this is actually a, a multi-pronged question. Um, 
one, do you think that this could hurt your candidacy? Two, are you locked to this particular um, nominee? Particularly, I believe um, he may not even be in the country. Um, and three, if we're going in that direction, the person that asked the question wants to know, wouldn't we be better off um, having you pair up with Tiger King who has better exposure? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question, and I, I'm glad you bring up my friend John McAfee. We have teamed up in the platform to say that we would both want to take the federal government through a peaceful, orderly, responsible bankruptcy process. And I can't name him as my running mate. I, I mean, you know this, Chris, that it's the delegates who choose who the nominee uh, for vice president is separately from the nominee for president. And I would certainly defer to the delegates in choosing that. And John McAfee still has to come out to the national convention, or if it's online one way or another, he has to make his case to the delegates directly. And I think he's more than capable of doing that as someone who has huge social media reach, far more than anybody in this debate right now, who has far more name ID, who has far, far more co corporate media experience than anybody, uh, or corporate organizational experience, management experience, excuse me, than, than anybody in the race, uh, at least anybody on uh, in the debate right now, I should say. And I think what he brings to the ticket is so powerful and so incredible. And this message of localization is really uniting people. And that's what we're showing with this. I've also been endorsed, not just by John McAfee, but Cynthia McKinney, former Green Party nominee for president, six-term Democrat congresswoman from Georgia. And I, I want to respond to something Sam Robb said in, in the prior statement where he said, uh, saying that we're going to end the federal government is terrifying. Uh, where do you get this? I've been going out for two years talking to people. They love this idea. Secession is extremely popular. If anything, you giving them an option of, well, I'm going to go off the cliff at 10 miles an hour, that's terrifying. Being stuck with the duopoly, not having a real alternative, that's terrifying. And the numbers prove it, Sam. You haven't gone out and talked to people. You haven't reached regular Americans with a real message that gives them a real alternative. This is why at one point recently I had raised... 10 times as much money as all other candidates in this race combined. You know, your numbers would suggest, uh, Sam, that, that people are afraid of what you're offering because it's not a real alternative. What John McAfee and I are offering is a real alternative. Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. Um, our final question is to Mr. Uh, Berman. Um, Mr. Berman, you have called, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, if we, um, or how do we fund programs like Social Security and Medicare in a Berman presidency? Do we fund them at all? And what happens to the people that live on those benefits uh, currently if we end them? So th this is kind of a loaded question because it assumes that we should have people live until they're 60 or 65 and get on Social Security. Uh, we need to get off of that program. And I'm going to defer to the to the new American dream, which basically sets us up in a way that usually people buy their first home when they're about 30. They get a 30-year loan, a 30-year mortgage. They're still paying that until they're almost ready to retire. And so when they get their social security, they have to take that social security. And if they've successfully paid off their house and haven't done any second mortgages or anything else, they're going to be using all that social security money to pay their property tax. This is a completely flawed, flawed system. We need to get rid of all the taxes, all of the taxes, all the income. And when we do this, I mean, think about it. 
When we were put here on this earth, whether by God or evolution, whatever you believe in, did we ever have to work 40 hours a day to feed ourselves and keep a shelter over our head? No, that's absolute nonsense. We need to scrap this idea that we need to work 40 hours a week. We should, especially when we have technology um, that has that has influenced everything so that we, we produce more with less work. A single farmer can produce enough food to feed tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people with just his own labor. Why is it we are working so hard when we should be able to work a lot less, retire a lot younger, and we should not have 87% of America in debt? We fundamentally need to change this system. And most of this is all built on top of taxes and government programs that put everybody into debt. We scrap those and everyone will be fine when we get rid of these programs. All right, we're now moving to the next, actually my favorite part of this whole debate, which is the candidate-to-candidate uh, candidate questions. Um, the way this works, each candidate has up to one minute to ask another candidate. You get to pick um, a question, and it's two minutes to answer. The first question will come from Mr. Vora. Mr. Vora? You're, you're muted, or I can't hear you. Sorry, sorry you're right. You're right. I, was I was muted. Uh, my question is for Adam Kokesh. Adam, I've gotten to quite a few debates, not about my positions, but about your positions, which is not, which is that people have been insisting that your position of localization allows for forcible tax funding of public schools and government funded schools, as long as that is done at the county level or the state level. My, our, my position is that your position is not that at all, that your position says that you pay for whatever you want. And if you and 10 of your friends want to get together and hire some teachers, go ahead and do that. But you have no right to tax your neighbors without their consent. So can you please settle this debate that I've been getting in about your positions? Yeah, thank you so much, Arvin. I appreciate the opportunity, and, and I'll, I'll return the favor here in a second. The misrepresentation of this platform that we've seen from some of the candidates who aren't in this debate today being somewhat dishonest has obviously created a uh, false image where what I'm proposing is one first step in localization that we can all take together. That's what we need to do to win elections. That's what politics is about, building coalitions, making friends, sharing ideas that you're passionate about. And that, that's why I love it. If you're doing it right, politics is a lot of fun and very rewarding. And when it comes to this idea of localization, you know, Arvin, that my ultimate goal as a voluntarist, not a minarchist, not an anarchist, someone who says, as per the Libertarian Party platform, where government exists, it must be voluntary, that the way we get to a voluntary society is by localizing government down to the community level. And this is also how we build winning coalitions. I love the quote from Larry Sharp, who says, a libertarian is someone who says, you can be as liberal or as conservative as you want, as long as you don't force it on anybody else. I think the Libertarian Party as a whole would really do well to really internalize that message. And instead of making it about, this is what society has to look like, and government should this and shouldn't that, but to just say, look, you can have as much or as little government as you want, as long as it's voluntary. When you force people into a centralized coercive system, you take away that choice. I want every single American to have the opportunity to create a new system, to create a system based on their values, set up to meet their needs. That's the goal. Yes, Arvin, my platform is embarrassingly moderate. I'm talking about eliminating only three out of 22 million government jobs, less than one in seven government full-time employees work for the feds. And yes, the states would be allowed to continue until they dissolve down to the county 
and ultimately the community level. I think that kind of moderate, unifying principle platform can get us to victory, and if not, at least a breakthrough year for the LP. Thank you, Mr. Kokash. Uh, the next question will come from Mr. Rob. Mr. Rob? Yes, sir. This is for uh, Brian Ellison. So, Brian, um, you and I come from very different backgrounds. You know, I'm I'm much more of a guess. I guess you would call it a traditional uh, former Republican, uh, you know, conservative, uh, you know, from the right coming, you know, very socially conservative coming into the Libertarian Party. Uh, you're obviously coming in from the left. One of the things that I realized fairly quickly coming into the party and taking a look at the platform and really starting to try and understand libertarianism is that there are some patterns of behavior, some modes of thought that I had to guard against myself because I realized I was bringing in baggage from the authoritarian right. Have you encountered that on your journey? And what baggage, what modes of thought, what preconceived notions have you had to work to discard from the authoritarian left? Well, that's a good question. I think, um, I think maybe part of the problem is I, I, I didn't come from the left. Uh, frankly, I, I, I don't even identify right now as being associated with the left. What I think is what I where I see my my position within the Libertarian Party is that I see the importance of speaking to the left. I see the importance of that's right now where our biggest opportunity for outreach is. So I've I, I've always identified as an independent until I found the Libertarian Party. I never would have associated with a political party. I, I would have considered myself politically agnostic for, for a long time. I just was disinterested because I knew the system was broken. So I've never come from a point of uh, I mean, well. I do have an authoritarian background. I am I am an army veteran, so there's that, right? Uh, I mean, so uh, go but, navy, beat army, right? So, well, <laughs> the, but but I learned my lesson, right? I mean, I was 18 when I joined, and I quickly realized what a big mistake that was, and what how how damaging government is, and and maybe that's the baggage that I bring in is that you know I, I bring that experience of being like, look, I've seen the government at first hand failing so miserably that it ends up murdering people on the side of the road in Iraq. And, and having to go out and, and, and clean up that mess is something that would really probably open up pretty much anybody's eyes. So, but, but I guess to get kind of back more to the, the core of your question, I, I think that, that people do tend to be, bring in some of their baggage with them and, and anybody who's coming from any authoritarian side. And, I, and I've, often I think I've been mischaracterized as, as being somebody who only wants to accept purists into the party, and, and that's patently false. I want to accept people who, who want to come into the party who want to do the, the journey that you've done. Like you said, you've identified your, your baggage and you're trying to shed your baggage and trying to make yourself more of that pure libertarian. While, while you do have a pragmatic approach, which, you know, I, I, I hate to agree with Kokesh sometimes, but, you know, I, I don't think this is the best approach. But I think that, it, you know, and that's, you know, Adam, Adam and I agree on a lot. But but uh, I think that it's important to, uh, you know, that anybody who wa wants to come in, join the party and shed their baggage. Welcome. Thank you, sir. Uh, the next question will come from Adam Kokesh. Adam? Well, uh, my question is for Arvind Vorha, but I got to say, I'm really torn. I want to ask Brian Ellison if he'll let me give him a haircut because, you know, I cut my own hair as a self-reliant libertarian. And I, I would want to ask Sam about some of his messaging strategies, which I think are very well thought out, or Dan about how taxation is theft, employing that as a matter of policy transforms the federal government into a voluntary agency. But Arvind, Similarly, you have done something really beautiful with your platform that I have immense respect for. I think localization is a better way to unify people, but you truly are 
in line with libertarian principles, saying that if there's no victim, there's no crime, no federal law will be enforced. And giving people this fundamental alternative is absolutely critical. How do you see this actually playing out? I think some people would object, what do you do about a Republican, Democrat-controlled Congress? But I know that you've thought this out as well. So could you please explain how being the partner-in-chief fundamentally transforms the federal government? The Constitution was written to make it easier to not do something than to do something. It was made, it, it's designed to be easier to set somebody free than to keep them in a cage. It's designed to be easier to shut down a department than to create a new one. Today, it seems like the opposite, but that's only because all politicians are working together to create more stuff and imprison more people. What I've said is that on my first day, I'm going to pardon Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and Ross Albrecht. I don't need congressional approval to do that. I said that I'll follow that up by pardoning all nonviolent drug offenders, drug users, drug traffickers, anyone in jail for a weapon charge, anyone in, the, in jail for a cryptocurrency charge. Again, I don't need congressional approval to do that either. But here's what's even better. I don't need to be elected to do that. I've gone around the country in every debate that I've been in, I've, in every state that I've gone to, I've brought up the following point, which is that jury nullification brought freedom of the press to the United States of America. We all have the power to be partners in chief. So I'm going to ask every single person watching this debate today to remember that if you're on a jury and it's a victimless crime, you have the right to say not guilty because it's not a crime. That's what happened to bring freedom of the press to America. The person was guilty of the facts. They had committed the crime. But the jury recognized that speaking out or publishing an article against royal governor wasn't a crime at all. It was part of what the press should do. And so I will be encouraging people all over the country, just even if I'm just the nominee, I promise you this, you, Adam, and anybody else watching, that if I'm the nominee, as many people will know that, free, that jury nullification brought freedom of the press to America, as now know where Aleppo is, thanks to Gary Johnson. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Gora. Uh, the next question will come from Mr. Berman. Mr. Berman? So uh, I was, Adam, I was actually going to ask you a question. Um, uh, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? But, um, but then I realized what? I actually no have, a, <laughs> I have a better question for you. Um, uh, are you planning on attending Taxationist Theft Fest? I hear you're speaking there. And what are you planning on talking about? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm, I'm really excited about this. And I'm so glad that you and, and the people who are coming together with you are putting together this online event, especially during the coronaphobia crisis when we're all turning to new means of communication. So what I want to talk about, what I think to, to your audience who is generally on board with the voluntary principles of libertarianism and self-ownership and, of course, supporting the idea, I, I assume if you're going even virtually to the taxation is theft festival that you're, you're, you're at least friendly to the concept. You know, what I think that people would benefit most from, for me in, in that context is an understanding of my civil disobedience activism and how a lot of people say, Adam, you know, you're, you're so brave. And I, and I really want to deconstruct that because, you know, while, while I volunteered for combat and all that, and, and that was more naivety than bravety, the, idea that I employ in civil disobedience in making these decisions is about being better with calculated risk. A lot of people here, you might get arrested. 
and their risk side of the equation just goes completely off the charts. And they can't calculate the reward side of the equation if they don't understand the benefit of standing up to tyrannical authority as I have throughout my career as an activist in civil disobedience. And I want to give people that courage, but it doesn't come from this mysterious you know, life force of, of courage. It's, it's confidence in your calculations, confidence in your principles. And, and that's what I want to give to your audience, Dan. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share that with them. And for your asking me this question, giving me the chance to share another part of what I think I bring to the table as a nominee who's been a uh, you know nationally known, uh, globally renowned even civil disobedience activist. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan and Mr. Kokesh. Um, the next question will come from Mr. Ellison. Mr. Ellison? Yeah, so my question is going to be for uh, Mr. Berman. And um, I, I've mentioned, I mentioned earlier, and I mentioned probably every time I speak, that I think that this election cycle, the most important demographic that we need to reach is the left. I think that there's, you know, there's a, certainly an argument to be made. I don't know whether you agree or disagree, but that, that the anti-authoritarian left is looking for a home. Bernie's not their leader, even though that's who they've clung to. Uh, and they belong in the Libertarian Party, but we have a hard time speaking to them. With your slogan of taxation is theft, which seems like something that would just be immediately, immediately turn off somebody who is so used to thinking that government is the solution to all their problems. I, I, I feel like maybe you might have a hard time reaching that demographic. Like, how would you deal with that situation? And how would you tailor your message to be able to talk to uh, that audience? That's uh, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right now. And, and especially because historically the libertarians pull from the right very easily. And since the left is so screwed, they have a terrible candidate running that nobody on the left even likes. It's a perfect opportunity for us to use this time to reach them. And yes, taxation is theft is usually a bit jarring for them. But the first question I usually ask them if they object to that is, well, do you like all this money being taken from you to use to buy bombs to drop on people in foreign countries. And of course they say, well, no, I don't like my money being spent for that. Do you like money being taken from your paycheck and used to lock up your brothers and sisters because they wanted to smoke a little weed? Oh no, of course I don't agree with that. So absolutely, that's an amazing message. But going back to the new American dream, and I posted an amazing video of that on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash theft. Um, and, and that video really describes it. And it points out that taxes create poverty. The reason we're dependent on these systems, we're dependent on welfare, we're dependent on jobs, we're dependent on social security is because the government has created so many programs that have put us all in debt and taxes us so much that it makes it impossible for us to pay any of that debt off. We are perpetually in debt. And of course, that works out great for the big corporations that are buying off their friends in Congress, because that means we're all sitting here begging Please, please, can I have more hours at work? Which means we're willing to accept lower wages. So this even solves the minimum wage problem. And I've shown this to so many people on the left, so many Democrats, Bernie Sanders supporters, Andrew Yang supporters, they see this and they're amazed. And they're like, wow, you're absolutely right. If we get rid of the taxes and we get rid of the regulations, we actually can have prosperity for everybody in this country. Thanks, guys. All right, we've got a couple questions, uh, general questions we're going to hit now. Um, and the first one looks like it will be to Mr. Rob. Um, assuming that you're not, and this question is going to go to everyone, assuming that you're not successful in your campaign for president, do you commit to supporting the eventual nominee of the Libertarian Party, no matter who it is, 
Um, and would you be running interested in running for vice president? And why or why not to each? Okay. So first part of the question, uh, if I'm not successful in, in uh, the nomination, am I going to support the eventual, eventual nominee? And uh, honestly, at this point, I think I'm going to say yes. Uh, there was earlier uh, in the campaign, there was a little bit of hedging. But at this point, uh, you can see who the front runners on are. Uh, you can see who the, basically who has a shot at the nomination and who doesn't. And uh, I'm going to say that, yes, I will support the candidate. And again, yes, that does include Justin Amash if he happens to uh, make it into the process and does win the nomination. Uh, I believe it's important for us as a party to establish the, the idea that we stand behind each other, even when we don't entirely agree on all specifics. Uh, Adam mentioned uh, Larry Sharp's 80% rule. If uh, we agree on 80%, we should be able to work on that and uh, get that done. Uh, and absolutely believe that uh, of the candidates that are out there right now, I agree with them a lot more than 80%. So I absolutely would support them. As for vice president, yeah, of course I'd be open to running for uh, the vice presidential nomination. Um, I think that depending on the candidate, I could bring uh, a, certain amount, a certain amount of uh, uh, good qualities to the campaign. Uh, I am, you know, obviously, if you have someone who's who is uh, from the left, I'm from the right. That's a lot, you know, kind of a unifying ticket. I'm more of a pragmatist. If you have someone who is more of a more of a uh, uh, let's get it done now sort, um, so I could be a moderating influence, uh, and I absolutely would be willing to run. But again, if I, if uh, that did not happen, if I ended up just being uh, once again some guy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I would be doing my best and offering my services and as you know in terms of campaign staff in terms of helping out in terms of uh traveling and speaking if need be uh to whoever the nominees are okay thank you mr rob um mr kokesh questions to you for who the nominee is among our current candidates i will be supporting them with veterans for whomever it happens to be and we are going to be retaking the debates. We are going to guarantee that if the Libertarian Party candidate is not in the debates, the Republicans and Democrats will not be allowed to debate either. When we marched on the White House for Ron Paul in 2012 with a formation of veterans, we showed that we can organize veterans for Libertarian candidates. And we are going to do that this time in civil disobedience as Jill Stein as Ralph Nader, as other presidential candidates shut out of debates have in the past. But this time we have a lot more people backing us up, including truckers who have organized shutdowns. We are going to gridlock the blocks around whatever the venue is and guarantee that if the Libertarian Party presidential nominee is not allowed to debate, the Republican and Democrat nominees will not be allowed to debate either. We will be the story and the bigger conversation. I would be happy to run as a vice presidential nominee with anybody who was actually running on a consistent principal platform that would not put me in the position of being president overseeing a involuntary, coercive, authoritative central government. If it was someone like Arvind Vora or Dan Berman or John McAfee, absolutely. As for Justin Amash, he wasn't in the race when I said this. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, and he hasn't put out any kind of a platform yet that I'm aware of. So I hope he has a principled one, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, just to go back, Bernard Johnson said in the comments, what can you do to get uh, help get libertarians elected at the local level? Localization, localization, localization. Make the emphasis about communities. Make libertarianism about live and let live and letting people have systems 
based on their values, set up to meet their needs. That's how we support local candidates inherently built into the messaging of this campaign. Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. Um, Mr. Berman, the question's to you. So if the question was about anybody in this debate here tonight, I would say absolutely. But if the question is in general, absolutely not. I am not a straight party ticket voter. And this is something that the libertarians tell Democrats and Republicans not to do. Don't vote straight ticket. In fact, we have a faction of the Libertarian Party that wants to eliminate that option from the ballot. So you're forced to go through every single choice and pick a name. Um, this, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not the kind of person who would even buy a 30-year adjustable mortgage. Why? Because you're agreeing to an interest rate that you might have now, but what's it going to be in a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years? You never know. So why would you commit to something like that? Why would I commit to backing a candidate who I don't even know who that is? It doesn't make any sense, and I would absolutely never do that. And in fact, that's why I'm not a lifetime member of the Libertarian Party, because who knows where the party could go? It's very possible that, that, that this party could be taken over by Republicans. They've tried it before. They'll try it again. They might be trying it right now. As, as Adam pointed out about COINTELPRO, there are plenty of operatives already within this party. If it gets taken over and takes a completely different direction, I don't want to be labeled as a lifetime member and say, hey, I committed for a lifetime because that's not a realistic commitment that anybody can make. You cannot realistically commit to the unknown. That's not practical. That's not... I, I would argue not even libertarian. Thank you, Mr. Berman. Mr. Ellison. Yeah, so if I would have, if you would have asked me this question a few weeks ago, it, it would have been an emphatic yes. I would support uh, everybody who has who was actively campaigning within the field. Uh, while I don't agree with everybody's positions, I don't see anybody as as being um, really. There's there's a couple issues where I think some people maybe conflict with the platform, but generally, I think the people that were had been running. We're represent libertarian principles and, and represent them fairly well. And so uh, the problem is, is that now we have a Republican, a conservative. Well, let's not call him a, a Republican because he calls himself an independent and then now whatever. But uh, with Justin Amash in the race, I mean, he, he is he, he's a conservative. He's a constitutional conservative. We I think it was the first question in this debate. We talked about what is messaging. What, what was it was uh, being on message or winning votes more important. And, and it came down to a point of being honest. And I think being honest is important. And I and I mentioned that that at that point that I think that it's important that we're honest as a party. And so am I going to support somebody who I think is is dishonestly representing the, the message of libertarianism? No, no, I won't. Will I actively campaign against them? No, I'm, I'm not interested in hurting the party, but I'm not going to I'm not going to perpetuate that lie. I'm not going to support a candidate who I think is really less than less than just not representing what, what libertarianism is about. I think it's bringing that conservative slant to the party is really detrimental to what we've been, been working on. As far as a, a VP, you know, if, if somebody thought that I brought, brought balance to their ticket or, or was a help, help to their, uh, to their campaign and the delegates approved me, yeah, I'd run. A am I going to run on somebody else's platform? Nope. Uh, you're going to get Brian Ellison the way Brian Ellison is. So uh, do, what do I think my prospects are as far as that? Probably pretty slim. Awesome. All right, we have one final general up, oh, Mr. Vora. Mr. Vora, I, I want to address something that that Dan just said. And Dan is somebody that I've learned probably the most. Dan, I probably learned the most from you during this campaign of all of all the other candidates. And and you're somebody that I have a lot of respect for. But I I have to admit that I'm puzzled by your last comment because what? How would the party look different 
if its goal was to support Republicans. For the last three election cycles, this party has nominated for its top of the ticket position a former Republican. We have become an organization that is essentially tricking libertarians into voting for Republicans. If there is some further co-opted level than that that exists, I hope never to see it. But to me, it's kind of already here. I will support any candidate who is working to cut government only and not grow it at all. Adam, I would immediately support you. And you have already made that clear. Dan, I would immediately support you. I've made that clear. Brian, I would support you because you've only ever talked about cutting government. You never talked about growing it as far as I know. Sam, you've only talked about cutting government and never growing it. But let me tell you this. If somebody's talking about cutting government about 90 to 99% of the time and just growing it for one thing, I'm not going to support that person because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The media is going to latch onto that one bit of growth. The, the voters are going to talk about that one bit of growth. How do I know? Look what happened with Gary Johnson. People only talked about his fair tax, which was a type of growth in government. They only talked about his other ways in which he wanted to add things. With Justin Amash, he's already pledged, he's already indicated that we think he thinks we should grow government at the state level through Medicaid expansion. And he has already voted to increase funding for DC public schools, the worst public schools in the whole world. So I'm not going to support somebody who is going to grow government at all. I will only support people who will only cut government. As to VP, if that's something the delegates want, sure. But I'm going to be on message, and that message is cutting government and growing it never. Thank you, Mr. Gora. Um, one final general question, and then we're going to get into the um, uh, closing arguments. Um, and this is for all the candidates. What is your plan to obtain earned media for candidates? for your campaign and to spread the message of liberty if you're the nominee? And what steps have you taken to date to both um, build up campaign infrastructure and to be in a position to run a national campaign? Uh, Mr. Kokesh, the question will go to you first. Oh, thank you, Chris. That's a very important question for the delegates to consider when we're considering who the nominee is, who's coming in ready, who's got the organization. And I want to start with a shout out since you ask about earned media to my press secretary, Marcus Pulis in Indiana, who has done an amazing job for this campaign. I've been doing two interviews a day most days, and it's just been an amazing opportunity to connect with people who you wouldn't normally talk to in the course of regular activism if you're not doing something to get out of the libertarian bubble. And that's what I've done my entire career as an activist, civil disobedience, organizing street theater, organizing protests where you actually get people's attention and get uh, the, the, the earned media that comes with doing something meaningful and significant by being that middle finger to the man, by being the guy dancing at the Jefferson Monument or with the shotgun in Washington, D.C., or shutting down the debates with a formation of veterans making sure that the Libertarian Party candidate is allowed to debate no matter who it is. I have a great track record. I will stand behind every day and measure up against the other candidates here in terms of getting earned media with activism, with creative messaging. And that would be incredible if we had a candidate who had that kind of skill set. And I hope to support whoever the nominee is with that skill set in whatever capacity I can. We've raised more money than any other candidates at this point. We've got a great campaign manager who's been with me for two years, Elijah Gizzarelli in Rhode Island. We've got incredible coalition groups, victims of family law, stoners, Christians, exotic entertainers, uh, GSM, gender and sexual minorities, gun owners, first responders. I, I'm afraid off the top of my head I'm leaving somebody out. But we bring all of this organization to the campaign, to the race, to the Libertarian Party. 
And I, I think that this makes it really clear that this is a message that works. Localization, the everybody gets what they want strategy. Get rid of this coercive central authority. Let's have a peaceful transition in which we get to take back what has been stolen from us. Restore America, make it about freedom, take back our heritage, our birthright. That's what localization is about, and it's working. Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. Mr. Berman? Yeah, I mean, those are those are all really great ideas. And of course, uh, I have a big yellow hat that gets a lot of attention. Um, but ultimately, all of this uh, comes down to really one simple answer. Hire a professional. There are professionals who are out there who are willing to help us, who already have connections with all of the major media and can get us in. It's just a matter of money. Um, we talk about how we're all being uh, deplatformed and censored from Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and all these other places. Yeah, the algorithms are working against us, but you throw a little bit of money at them and it works. Now, I know a libertarian candidate doesn't raise as much money as um, Bloomberg, um, but we have some money enough to make things work. And we have a message that can resonate with people. And if we can really get a message to resonate with people, we can really make things happen. Look at Bernie Sanders. Most of his donations were $5 donations from people who didn't have a whole lot of money. And he got very far. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to praise his, his platform or anything like that, but his strategy for raising money and getting media attention was amazing. And it worked and it got him a lot of support. We, we, as libertarians, it's, we always like to do things differently, right? We don't want to, we don't want to take on the original system. We don't want to do anything that resembles government or any of these existing systems. But the reality is there are people who are experts in all of these fields that libertarians usually don't know how to do on their own. And they reject the idea of high, hiring professionals, whether it's marketing, advertising, public relations, communications, they reject the idea that we should hire insiders. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because for the most part, they don't even care about politics. All they care about is who's giving them money and we can make that work for us. Thank you, Mr. Berman. Uh, Mr. Ellison? Yeah, so you brought up earlier, when it comes to earned media, you brought up the uh, my campaign for, for Congress in 2018, where I was I, I was successfully able to get international press coverage just by just by essentially through a, a viral Facebook post. We ran a campaign for to arm the homeless. And it was it was something that that on its face didn't seem to resonate libertarian principles, but certainly the underlying principles were very libertarian. And what it did was it gave us an opportunity. It, 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 people looked at it and said, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" And it got me a whole bunch of interviews. I mean, I I, I can't even remember them all. Vice, Newsweek, RT, uh, Fox News, a, a, a ton. I mean, I mean, we were all over the place for a couple of weeks. And I think that the way that we're going to get earned media moving forward is by by doing interesting things. Uh, Arm the Homeless worked because at the time, gun control was a very big topic. People were talking about gun control. And here we were, instead of instead of playing into their narrative and saying, yeah, we support gun control or we're opposed to gun control, we said, you know what, we're going to take this in a completely different direction. You guys want to take away guns? We're going to give away guns. And who are we going to give them to? People that you probably don't want to have them. And people stood up and, and listened to it. And And by being by saying something like that, we were able to convey libertarian principles through the media that we earn. And so 
that's how we're going to get earned media. I mean, it, this isn't just, this is something that I've done. After, upon that, I did, I've also done all kinds of civil disobedience, not as much as what Adam did, because he's been doing it for years. I did it for one campaign cycle. And, but, but, you know, I, we ran the war on cops. Uh, I, t- I took a YouTube channel to, from zero to 5,000 uh, viewers in a matter of about two weeks before I was uh, arrested and given a restraining order from uh, every uniform law enforcement officer in the world. So, um, that's how we're going to get earned media coverage is by doing things that other candidates are not willing to do. Thank you, Brian. Um, Mr. Vora, before we go to you, I am going to take a little break here. Um, for our viewers that are watching on Facebook and live, we've got a poll and we would ask that you go in and you vote in that poll. Uh, the poll is down at the bottom. It's going to be lpky.org. Dan, you got a bad link. Give us a good link, Dan. Um, <laughs> lpky.org slash for debate um, is the poll link. Um, and we'll, we're going to keep putting that up, um, you know, as we as we get going. Please vote. Uh, it is important. It does determine some things we've got coming up. Um, go ahead, Mr. Vora, uh, with your answer to this question, please. Let's let's talk about not just how you get the media, but what you do with it. Listen, whoever our nominee is, is going to get a lot of media. Gary Johnson got a lot of media. Bob Bard got a lot of media. As vice chair, I got a lot of media. As a candidate, I've gotten a lot of media. I've been interviewed by major media in the United States as well as abroad. The question isn't so much what are you going to do, what, how much media you get, but what you do with the media. And we saw what Republican lights did with the media. We saw what Bill Weld did with his major CNN media, which is he squandered it on endorsing Hillary. Recently, the Ron Paul Institute evaluated one of Justin Amash's 10-minute major media interviews and pointed out that in those 10 minutes, he managed to say nothing libertarian at all. That's the kind of nominee that we don't want. Listen, Justin Amash is going to get a lot of media, and he's going to waste all of it on just virtue signaling and other types of nonsense. He hasn't said anything libertarian yet in any of his major media interviews that I've seen. He couldn't even say anything about cutting government to reason, the most libertarian-friendly media you're ever going to see, ever. Here's what I've done with the media that I've gotten. When I did the Libertarian Party State of the Union response, that was seen. It was the second most popular response in history on YouTube, and it was then picked up by Glenn Beck and showed his millions of viewers on his, on, on his TV show. That hardcore libertarian message about abolishing government schools, ending the welfare state, ending the income tax, getting rid of the FDA, that went extremely far. I've had the things that I've said to one media reshared by many other media. Uh, for example, a quote that I had on RT was retweeted by WikiLeaks and shown to their thousands and thousands of fans. I can pl- promise you this. I don't think I can get you more media than Justin Amash. But I will say this, what I, whatever, I, whatever I, media I do get, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to say more libertarian things in 10 seconds than he's able to not say in 10 minutes. If you want to learn more about that, check out some of my clips at votevora.com. All right, Mr. Rob. So here I am. Just some guy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A year ago, I was unknown in the Libertarian Party. Uh, I don't wear a boot on my head. I don't have a fancy hat. I don't have a history of political activism. And yet here I am debating with these gentlemen. That's because I've got a platform that resonates with people. I've got a platform that Democrats and Republicans and independents look at and say, you know what? This makes sense. 
this is something that I can get behind. And this is something that I can support. It's a libertarian platform. It's a very pragmatic platform that ultimately has very radical ends. And people are comfortable with that. So what would what would I do to get on media? What I would do is rely on the people that I'm here with right now. I would rely on Dan Berman. I would rely on Vermin Supreme. I would rely on Adam Kokesh. I would rely on Brian Ellison, the experts who know what it means to get out there and to rally people, what it means to get attention, and what it means to bring notice to the party so that we can use that and turn that into an opportunity to talk to people where they are about the problems that they're facing whether they're on the left or they're on the right, asking them, hey, what was the last time you had anything to do with government? What was the last interaction you had? Did you like it? Do you want more of that? No. Would you like to decrease the size of government? Oh, you're on the right. You, and you, you say yes, but you would, you would rather stay in, involved in these wars overseas? On the left, you, you don't want to decrease the size of government? Well, what about the war on drugs? Because that's being run by the government. We have a message that resonates with people. All we need to do is get that out and make that known. As far as fundraising goes, again, we are in a unique situation. Right now, you have major players in the technology industry who are looking at the Libertarian Party and thinking, you know what? I'm unhappy with the left. I'm unhappy with the right. I can't support Biden. I can't support Trump. Where am I going to go? Who is going to make this a country where I can do business? And the answer is the Libertarian Party. Thank you, Mr. Rob. Um, Mr. Ellison has used a rebuttal card. Mr. Ellison? Yeah, I would really just like to reiterate a point that, that Arvin brought up, because I don't think it can be said enough, is we can talk all day long about getting media and getting in front of the spotlight and, and getting on all these news programs. But if we're not portraying libertarian messages, we're wasting our time. There's plenty of people out there that can get a ton of media. But if they're not going to sit down in front of that interviewer and answer the questions the way that any one of us would in this debate, then they're wasting their time. Arvin brought up that MSNBC interview with Justin Amash, where he sells himself as he's he's better than Biden and Trump because he's decent and he's respectable. Like, you know, if we as a party go forth selling selling an individual rather than selling our our system that that is that government is fundamentally flawed and government is not the answer if we're not selling a system then then when amash fails if he's our nominee and he disappears from the party just like all the rest of them do then we are nowhere we've gotten nowhere with this candidacy we need to use whoever earns the media needs to be using it to promote libertarian ideas thank you sir um mr kokesh one minute yeah, not so much a rebuttal, but I want to use my last time extension before we get to closers <laughs> here and talk about something that's really important in this campaign and the libertarian movement when we see the world trending already towards localization, towards decentralization. And a lot of this comes down to monetary policy. And I know we haven't talked about this. It's kind of disappointing that it hasn't come up more, more or, or veteran suicides or Native American rights, things that are really critical and really benefited through localization. So I just want to point out that, I'll, you know, with John McAfee and, and, and my connections to the Bitcoin community, what we're going to be able to do is bring back and the Fed as a rallying cry and mean it in a whole new way. I think we need to really get in touch with these fundamental issues and look at what has worked in the past and adopt it to what the situation we are facing today is. And the Fed, localization, decentralization, secession, already polling higher than any Libertarian Party presidential nominee ever has. 
Thank you, Mr. Kokesh. All right, we're going to now proceed to a closing argument time. Now, I want to be clear, uh, the way this works is if you haven't used an extension card, you get more time. And so, uh, Mr. Behrman, you're going to get, um, or Mr. Berman, you're going to get four minutes. Mr. Ellison gets three. Mr. Borg has four. Mr. Rob has five. Mr. Kokesh has three. Um, and so we just automatically added the extension onto the end of your time. That's how these work. Um, the first closing will be for Mr. Berman. You've got four minutes, sir. Awesome. So, um, of course, again, I want to go back to the, the new American dream. We as libertarians have to have something to sell. And if it's just libertarianism, what is that? It's such a big, complicated thing with so many different facets. People are like, what's that about? And yeah, you can sell it to them. But for a lot of people, it's what's in it for me. What's what does a free market get for me? Um, what does what does ending the drug war get for me when they have a sick grandmother or uh, a cousin with diabetes or whatever the case may be? They're concerned about their personal issues, and we have to address those. And that's really what the New American Dream seeks to do. It says, look, we understand you have issues that are outside of the scope of what libertarians usually promote. And we have to show them that if you fix these problems, if you apply this solution, that you will solve your problems. You will get affordable health care, and you don't need to steal from somebody else in order to make it happen. You won't have to worry about job security or immigrants taking your jobs or, or being replaced by a robot. You won't have to worry about that because our lives will be built on a solid foundation that doesn't have any debt. We'll be earning more. We'll be retiring younger. We'll have savings so that when the next coronavirus comes around, whatever, because every year apparently we have this, this giant pandemic, when that happens again, even if they shut down the economy, we'll all be fine because we'll have money saved away and we don't have to rely on opening our business to cut hair just to put food on the table as much as they have the right to be able to do that. This is so, so important. I've talked to so many people, especially from the left. It's easy for the right to come over to the Libertarian Party because they come over, they like guns, they hate taxes. And hey, Libertarians are totally on board with that. But they usually fight with us on open borders. Why? Because we don't address their issues. We talk about freedom when they're worried about their jobs. When we talk to the left, they disagree with us even more because while they like the idea of legalizing all kinds of drugs and allowing them the personal autonomy to do whatever they want with their own bodies, we completely reject the idea that somebody should help the fact that they have a sick grandmother or they can't afford to pay their rent. And I agree, we should not be taxing and spending to solve this problem, but we don't need to. There are absolutely libertarian solutions to solve these problems that involve completely getting rid of government programs. It's as easy as that. And once these people understand that, they no longer look at libertarians as the evil capitalists who just want the poor to die in the streets, and they start looking at us as problem solvers. Why do people vote for presidents? For us, for libertarians, we usually look for somebody who's either going to uphold the Constitution and restrict the government or somebody who's going to completely get rid of the government. But why do normal people vote for presidents? They want their problems solved. And if we're talking about getting rid of the government or reducing the size of government or making it constitutional, it goes in one ear and out the other for them because that doesn't relate to their problems that they're trying to solve. Trump came in. What did he do? He declared war on the existing government. And he said, I'm going to solve some problems. I'm going to get America back on track. I'm going to create jobs. I'm going to put money in everybody's pocket. I'm going to make America great again. That's what he promised to give people. 
And how did he do a lot of that? By getting rid of some, some government programs. Now, of course, he added other government programs and he's kind of a tyrant. He's not perfect, but that was a sales pitch that he gave people in order to get government out of the way. We can absolutely do the same as libertarians. We don't have to lie. We don't have to pander. We can stay on point. We can stay on message. We can absolutely do this, but we can turn people into people who understand that libertarianism is the right way to get what they want in life, to have a happy life, to not worry about debt, to not worry about rent. That's where we need to go with this country. It's an absolute libertarian principle, and it works with the left and the right. Thank you, Mr. Berman. Mr. Ellison. So every every four years, we as a libertarian party get a, get a big stage to play on. Um, every four years, historically, for the last several cycles, we have we have conceded that stage to an outsider. This election cycle, we have a great opportunity. We have we have a guy in Dan Berman with a big yellow hat who changed his middle name to taxation is theft. We got uh, you know Adam Kokesh, who's a, who's a well-known civil disobedience uh, political activist who's who wants to abolish the entire federal government. We have you know, all these qualified candidates. We got a, a guy who puts a boot on his head and talks about giving everybody a free pony because he understands like the rest of us that the political system is a complete joke and he wants us to be in on it, right? We have so many opportunities to do great things. Like I said before, anybody who's been in this race longer than about three weeks it is more than capable of picking up that libertarian flag and carrying it for this party. And I would be proud to support them. We need to seize the opportunity we have this year and put a libertarian message in front of the American people. They need to hear it. This platform that we're going to give to whoever the candidate is, is going to elevate whoever this individual is. Stop looking for somebody who's already elevated and let's elevate one of our own. Let's prop somebody up who's earned it, who's put in the time, who knows the talking points and who can sell libertarianism to the American people. And whether that message is abolishing the federal government, whether that message is that the political system is a joke, whether that message is that taxation is theft, whatever it is. We need to be sending that libertarian message rather this than any type of other Republican light or constitutional conservative message. This is a huge opportunity for the Libertarian Party, and, and we really need to embrace it. So I implore all of you, even if you can't support me, even though I'm probably the best spokesman on this uh, on this stage, on this uh, live stream, support one of the other candidates that, that is on this, this debate. Support one of the candidates that has been putting in the work. Support a candidate that, that understands and convey the principles of libertarianism. Thank you, Mr. Ellison. Um, Mr. Vora, four minutes. You're muted, sir. Not long ago, I was on the biggest network in international, in, in India, reaching hundreds of millions of people. And this was during the busiest time. This was during the UN General Assembly meeting. And the question came up, what should we do about Kashmir? And I gave him the, the libertarian answer. They should be a free and independent state to do whatever they want to. And Adam, I thought of you at the time because I remembered that you, because you stood on principle, had gotten essentially kicked off your own show on RT. You fought the good fight, even though it cost you. Other great leaders, Ron Paul, fought the good fight even though it cost him. He stood up against the drug war at the height of its popularity. What makes people like Adam, what makes people like Ron Paul so inspiring to me is that you guys have been willing to fight the cultural war. 
you've recognized that libertarianism is not an inch deep, thick layer of political thought or political law or political philosophy, but rather it's about how you live your life through and through. And that's why I respect you, Dan. That's why I respect you because you've opted out of even living inside of the United States. You live in Mexico. You, you, you use the idea of making governments compete for your citizens, your business, make them compete for your indirect monies or, or your productivity. And that to me is what libertarianism is. Right now at the top of our, at the, at the front runners completely lack that. And they don't lack it because they're bad people. They lack it when they're trying to do good things. In fact, it's when they're trying to be most altruistic is where you see why they're entirely ill-suited to represent our movement. Consider Judge Jim Gray. One of the things he's involved in is in the stay at school program, encouraging people to stay inside of public schools. He's not doing it maliciously. He's doing it because he believes it's the right thing to do. But the fact that he believes that that's the right thing to do makes him the absolute wrong candidate for our party. It makes him the wrong candidate for this movement. It makes him the wrong spokesperson for the culture war that we must engage in if we hope to change America. On, to compare that, it's not that I believe in only private, only, only capitalism and only privacy and only trying to make money for yourself. One of the programs that I've been a part of, I've been blessed to be a part of, has been the AP Homeschool Project. That's APHomeschool.com. It's the opposite of stay in school. It's get the hell out of school and do something better. Be a better parent. Be a better student. Be a better teacher. Do something without government involvement. Libertarianism isn't just skin deep. It goes much deeper than that. Justin Amash, when he was being altruistic with your monies, when he was being altruistic with your taxes, was trying to give more money to D.C. public schools. I assume he was trying to help them. I don't think he meant anything malicious by it. But the fact that he thinks that's the right thing to do makes him the wrong candidate for this position. In 2008, we had a choice between Bob Barr and Dr. Ruert. Dr. Ruert, a deep principled libertarian, libertarian who, like any anarchist, any voluntarist, will say the government shouldn't be involved in anything. Even those things most incendiary, age of consent was brought up earlier, even areas like that. She said government has no place. And because of that, the delegates chickened out and voted for Bob Barr. In 2012, they chose Gary Johnson over Lee Wrights. In 2016, they chose Gary Johnson again over Daryl Perry. And right now, we have, are once again at the crossroads. But you don't have just one choice. You have multiple choices for incredible candidates, people who I would be proud to support, people like Adam Kokesh and Dan Berman. You guys have done an amazing job, and I'm proud to be on the stage with you. We here have a choice to make now. Are we ready to actually fight for our principles? Are we ready for this culture war? Are we ready to change America? Or are we going to repeat the mistakes of the past three election cycles and be nothing more than an organization that tricks libertarians into voting Republicans? I know for to voting for Republicans, I know what my answer is going to be. And if you want to learn more about my campaign, please join us at votevora.com. Thank you, Mr. Vora. Mr. Rob? Okay, so uh, one of the things that politicians take from us all the time is our money, our effort takes our time. So one of the things I'm gonna give you back is some time. I've got five minutes, I'm not gonna use it all. But I do wanna talk to you and give you an idea of where I'm coming from, uh, part of my campaign. Uh, speaking from my personal experience, as you can see here on the graphic, uh, I'm a member of an organization called killthecan.org. Uh, that's an 
organization, a website that supports for people quitting nicotine. 1,213 days ago, I put down a can of Copenhagen and said, that's it, no more, I'm done. And the individuals at Kill the Can helped me kick that habit. Actually, they would give me a hard time for even calling it a habit because it's not a habit, it's an addiction. And what we have here after 100 years of failed experiments with big government in the United States is an addiction. People are addicted to government. They're scared of the idea of what they might have to do without it. They feel like they need it in order to make it through the day and make it through their lives. And one of the things that I've learned by being involved with KTC and being involved with the addiction community is that people only change when they're ready. You can't force it. What we see right now in America is a lot of people who are ready. They're looking at the government and its response to this pandemic. They're looking at the government and the the election that's coming up. They're looking at the candidates that the two fossil parties are throwing up. And they themselves, they're, they're feeling the bile rise because they are done with life as usual, and they want something different. And I know from my time dealing with people who were ready to kick the addiction of nicotine, that those are the people that we can reach. Those are the people that we can turn into some of our best allies and some of our best supporters. My goal is to get them in 2020, to get them voting for us. My goal is to see those same people in 2024 campaigning for us. And my goal is to see those people in 2028 supporting us, campaigning for us, and celebrating victory as we stand on the smoking ruins of the two fossil parties and elect the Libertarian president again. We can't do that by ourselves. We need voters from the left and voters from the right who are primed and ready to hear and respond to the libertarian message. And we need somebody to get out there and give that to them. I believe that I'm the candidate that can do that. I believe that I can communicate to the left and speak to them in a language that they understand. I believe that I can do the same with the right that I can bring them together and help them understand that the Libertarian Party is the party that wants to help them solve their problems, that wants to show them how they can live the lives that they want to live. But we need someone who is able to go and reach them where they are because they're not gonna come to us. This is a political search and rescue mission. What we need is someone who can stand up next to Trump, next to Biden, and show the world, show America that libertarians are the adults in the room, that we are the ones that are taking things seriously, that we are the party that is actually concerned not about winning an election, not about gaining power, but about them and their problems. That is how we win hearts and minds. That is how we win this election. And that is what I want to do for the Libertarian Party. Sam Robb, samrobb2020.com. Thank you, Mr. Robb. Mr. Kokesh, three minutes. Adam, you're on mute. 
Thank you. So thank you, Chris, and thank you to everybody who's watching. And I, I had some notes for my conclusion here, but I just I'm feeling so much love tonight in the room. And, it, you know, at, at the risk of countering Sam's professionalism here, I, I, I do want to do something cool I've been waiting to do at the being at the very end for closing of a debate. But before I do that, please lpky.org slash four debate please go and vote for who you want to see in the next debate hosted by the libertarian party of kentucky which is doing an amazing job hosting this debate series and if you're listening in for the first time and you're not a member yet join the party of principle lp.org read the platform sign up you can add slash free membership if you don't want to give us 25 dollars, but we greatly appreciate that as well so I'm just feeling so much love in this debate tonight. And in my activism, it's always been about the love and respect for your fellow human beings. That's always what's behind the message of freedom. So we're going to get off of No Force One here, our campaign bus that we've been hustling around the country with for the last two years, making so many friends, getting this message out, spreading so much love and connecting with Americans all over the country. And I want to show this is the Garden of Freedom. This is how you live it. This is what I do. This is where I am living my American dream. Localization, the everybody gets what they want strategy. This is how we give everybody the chance to have their dream fulfilled too. So beautiful Arizona sunset, as is so typical out here. I hope that we can take this cam campaign back on the road, spreading the love. Thank you to all my fellow candidates joining me tonight. It's been a wonderful experience. You guys are all wonderful. And again, Thank you, Chris and Dan and Christy, for making this happen in the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. Mwah. Peace and love, y'all. Good evening, and thank you all for participating in our debate series. And this our second to last debate of the season. Um, if we could get all the candidates on the stage, there we go. Big smiles. We're going to post them on Facebook. You're going to be stuck in infamy. Big smiles. <laughs> Screenshot it. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. Um, just to, just to conclude, we've got a poll up. It's going to be up for you know just just a couple more minutes after we conclude. Wanted to thank the candidates for their participation, their time tonight, spreading libertarianism for their activism. It's important. Um, everything that we're doing is important. This message is important. People are fighting the fight all over. Um, we've got a big debate coming up Saturday night. Uh, we're going to be posting poll results from this and Saturday night. And again, it's going to be determined based on raw votes. Uh, but we'll have a winner tonight. Um, and then we'll have raw votes, and the raw votes will determine the Saturday night invitee. A couple more minutes to vote after we close down. Thank you to the candidates to coming, uh, for coming tonight. And uh, check out our page, lpky.org. Uh, in addition to joining the National Party, and if you're from Kentucky, please join our state affiliate. Uh, help support our efforts. Thank you all. Um, and this concludes our debate tonight.